I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Tilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, B. Lund, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. I'm currently recovering from a a dental operation, so if I sound a little bit off, that's why. In any case, on this edition of the program, acclaimed film historian Joseph McBride, author of such books as Billy Wilder, Dancing on the Edge, and The Whole Dern Human Comedy, Life According to the Coen Brothers, returns to discuss the life and films of Steven Spielberg, as well as the myth and reality behind the Hollywood legend's latest feature, the semi-autobiographical coming-of-age drama, The Fablemans. As the author of the unauthorized Steven Spielberg biography, Joe McBride is uniquely qualified to discuss the life and career of this filmmaking legend and able to offer insights into such Spielberg hits as E.T., Schindler's List, Jaws, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Lincoln, and more. We'll even get into Spielberg's early work in television with Twilight Zone creator Rod Serling, and how he was rejected by one of his filmmaking heroes, Alfred Hitchcock. All that and more on this edition of Parallax Views. Welcome back to Parallax Views. One of my favorite guests, uh, film historian, uh, amongst many other things, uh, Joseph McBride, author of two recent books, Billy Wilder, Dancing on the Edge, from 2021 and the whole Dern human comedy life according to the Cone brothers uh, released earlier this year and author of a book that's going to be relevant to our conversation, Steven Spielberg, a biography, which was an unauthorized biography of Steven Spielberg, which uh, is very well considered. It's, it's pretty acclaimed. 
that biography. Uh, how are you doing, Joseph McBride? Huh? Welcome back to the show. Thank you. Great to be uh, great to be back with you. It's always fun. So, Joseph, the reason I wanted to have you back on, in addition to your two books, is uh, we have Steven Spielberg. Uh, his new movie is out, and it's pretty biographical, The Fablemans. And you know, you're the person to go to when it comes to hashing out the reality from the fiction in a filmmaker's life. Uh, before we get into the Fablemans, though, how did you first encounter uh, Steven Spielberg? Well, um, I, re I remember reading about him in Variety when I was living in Madison, Wisconsin, before I moved to California. I was an avid reader of Variety every week, and they were reporting on this young guy who was making movies. And that was uh, unique at the time, because in Hollywood, in the 60s and well, even when I went there in the early, I was getting, it was getting better in the early 70s, but you had to be basically the son of a cameraman or something of that sort to get a job because it was very nepotistic and um, uh, the unions were very strict about newcomers. And so everybody who worked on sets, if you look at pictures of Spielberg's first uh, professional job, which was shooting an episode of, uh, or a segment of, night gallery uh, with Joan Crawford called Eyes. He's on the set with Joan Crawford, who is elderly. And then there are all these guys who are, you know, looking in their late fifties and sixties. And, you know, um, he was, he was looked at as uh, very unusual because he was, I mean, Orson Welles had made Citizen Kane when he was 24 or 25. Uh, but that, that had been a long time before. And that was unusual. And uh, so Spielberg was unique and, uh, so I, I kind of made a mental note to uh, try to interview him. I went to Hollywood in 1970 to interview John Ford, and I met Orson Welles and was in a film that he directed called The Other Side of the Wind, which has come out recently. And I met Jean Renoir. But in 1971, Welles called me back to, um, to uh, L.A. to do more shooting. And I thought, I remember thinking I should call this guy Spielberg at his office at Universal and try to interview him, but I was so busy, I didn't do it, and I wish I had. But the first time I saw his work was a TV movie called Something Evil. With, with uh, Darren McGavin, yeah. yeah I, I actually yeah. love that movie, but everyone forgets that he directed that. Yeah, it's a pretty good uh, horror film, and Sandy Dennis is in it. And uh, I flipped it on, and the first uh, sequence is a brilliant uh, opening. It's a very uh, avant-garde kind of use of the camera. I thought this guy really knows how to use the camera. I think that's why I wanted to look him up, because I thought, well, he's not just some unusual uh, guy because of his youth, but he really has a lot of talent. And um, I often wonder what it would have been like if I'd met him way back then. But... Um, uh, you know, then I, I moved to Hollywood in 73 and uh, 74. I went to work for Variety and he was, um, he had graduated from uh, uh, TV to films in 73 with the Sugarland Express. Um, although Duel had played um, theaters in Europe and later played theaters in America. I hadn't, I hadn't seen Duel at that time. I, I didn't catch it on TV. Uh, I was going to say real quick, uh, just for my younger listeners, if they haven't seen Dole, it's a it's a very good movie. It's just a very I mean, it's made as a TV movie, but I could see why it was released in European theaters, because, you know, it's basically like an extended, you know, um, cat and mouse game between yes. the protagonist and, a, you know, a trucker. So it's it's a really wildly tense story. And he did that very young. Right. Yeah, he was. Well, let's see. 1971, he was. uh 
Well, he turned uh, 25 that year. Um, he, um, yeah, that's an amazing film. It, it's very visual. And he, he, Richard Matheson wrote the script. It's based on a short story that he wrote that appeared in Playboy. And um, it's a good short story. The script is terrific. But Spielberg tried to cut out almost all the dialogue. And ABC, which aired the film, kept, prodding him to put more dialogue back in. They wanted Dennis Weaver's character to uh, have a monologue, you know, kind of talking to himself in the car, and Spielberg didn't like that. So they, they made him put some of that in. And uh, But it's it's like a silent movie. It's, uh, it's, yeah, it's a primal nightmare of road rage long before that term was invented of this guy, kind of a, anxious guy in a little car being chased by a gigantic truck and you never see the driver except for his hands and, and feet and uh <clears throat> the truck is kind of diabolical and um you know it's 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 an amazing movie it lends itself to all kinds of interpretations because it's a very sort of primal allegory and when spielberg went to europe with it the critics there were the mostly left-wingers and they're trying to get him to say it was a uh, allegory about capitalism versus the little guy and all. Spielberg wasn't wasn't going along with that, but uh, that film made him. Uh, that's the film that made him a name in Hollywood. Um, they took out an ad in um, the trades announcing this Sunday you've got to see this great film, and and the L.A. Times wrote a piece on it, and the reviews were great. And uh, Spielberg, um, the first week. Uh, after that, he got something like seven offers to direct feature films, and uh, uh, he got uh, telegrams and letters from all kinds of top directors. He put them on the walls of his office, and people like Truffaut and David Lean and Fred Zinnemann uh, all acclaimed his coming. You know, they could see he was a great director. But he, his big success as a director theatrically was Jaws, of course, in '75, and. Right. That's I wild, went, though, to think about how, you know, in 71, he's doing Dole. And then only, what, four years later, he's doing Jaws. He's a household name. Yeah, well, he, he actually well, I was going to say he, he wasn't a household name until E.T., you know, because I studied that looking at all the press stuff on him. And it's it's very um, an important step when uh, very few directors are household names anymore. Most people don't know who, who directed the film, even though the media talk about directors. But. Uh, back then, they weren't even talking about directors that much. But um, when he did Jaws, um, there was publicity on him, but not a lot about him. It was the film uh, was a phenomenon. But when he did E.T., suddenly, you know, there were all these stories about him. And um, he was going to be on the cover of Time magazine. He got bumped off. But um, he was actually, you know, because I one way I gauged that was I talked to, I interviewed a lot of his friends and who grew up with him and they said they wondered what happened to Stephen uh, or Steve as they called him uh, until E.T. and they suddenly thought oh he's he's making these movies you know and that's when he became a world name and it changed his life because it made him um, you know when you go out in public you get recognized and, and there's some bad effects of it he had a stalker some years ago threatening him and his family and he, he goes around with bodyguards and Bob Gale, who co-wrote 1941 with Robert Zemeckis for Spielberg, told me he thought you could you could see Stephen reflected in his protagonists. That 
1982, he was the kid in E.T., but by 1987, when he did uh, Empire of the Sun, uh, Gale said he's the kid uh, living behind barbed wire in this prison camp. You know, <laughs> that's Stephen's life, uh, which is unfortunate in some ways. But, I mean, it, Jaws is the film that gave him uh, complete control and final cut. So that's the most important film uh, for him in that sense. So it's interesting, you know, he does Jaws, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, E.T. Um, you know, what was it about his films that you think um, pulled people in so much? And also, maybe we should talk about this, because I know when you were writing the um, biography of Steven Spielberg, this unauthorized biography, uh, he was not necessarily the darling of critics at the time. Um yeah. Or film historians. Could you talk a little bit about that? Well, yeah, he was, um, you know, he that's one reason I wrote the book. I wrote the book from 93 to 97. I actually, uh, in 82, when Jaws came out, I, I, I considered doing a biography of him. I thought, well, he's a very interesting guy and it uh, should be a biography. But I thought he's only 35 and it's kind of premature to do a biography. Um, I'm glad I waited a bit, but um, he was, he was, dumped on by critics you still see that with the fablemans his new film it got terrific reviews almost unanimously when it came out about a month ago and now you're seeing a lot of snide backlash and part of that is i saw that happening with his previous feature west side story that the reviews were ecstatic and then the film came out and unexpectedly failed at the box office i mean i, I actually was surprised by that and then you started seeing people saying, well, yeah, it's really not that good a film, et cetera. You know, critics in America, reviewers tend to be uh, trend followers and slavish to the box office. Jonathan Rosenbaum wrote a good book called Movie Wars about that, how <clears throat> American reviewers are kind of, they see themselves as an adjunct to the studio publicity machine. And they're very, um, uh, they're, they're terrified of losing their jobs, uh, being out of step, et cetera, and uh, conformist people. So they tend to go along with uh, all the hype. And so now you've seen people coming out of the woodworks. But, but there also there's, there's a dedicated uh, legion of Spielberg haters. And I wrote a piece, a journal article a few years ago on the phenomenon of Spielberg hatred for a British uh, film journal. And I published most of it in the third edition of my Spielberg biography. I've updated it uh, twice. The third edition came out in 2012, but that's only available in England from Faber and Faber. You can get it from uh, Amazon England. In the tw 2012 in America, the um, University Press of Mississippi republished my biographies of Spielberg, John Ford, and Frank Capra, and they're, they're all in print. But they, they only published the second edition of uh, the Spielberg book back then. I really have to update it. You know, that's another thing. I, I've been so busy. I actually had four books out in that period um, late last year, early this year. I also had a book called Political Truth, the Media and the Assassination of President Kennedy, which I spent a long time working on and very proud of that book. Uh, I've written another book on Kennedy assassination called Into the Nightmare, my search for the killers of President John F. Kennedy and Officer J.D. Tippett. And both of those keep selling well. And um, that came out in 2013. It sells uh, uh, steadily all the time. 
Um, so that's been my, that's actually my major interest in life. Uh, films are kind of secondary. I, uh, I worked for Kennedy as a volunteer in his 1960 Wisconsin presidential primary campaign, got to meet him a couple of times then. And I met him once when he was president and, uh, <clears throat> the assassination changed my life as it did many other people. So I've been writing about that. So I had four books come out in a short period of time, but they all kind of came to a head around the same time, even though they took different periods of time to come out. But um, so I was uh, thinking of doing a Spielberg biography for a long time. And then um, a couple things happened. I, I kept resenting the fact that critics or reviewers, uh, she called them, um, were dumping on this, this fellow almost uh, entirely. There were a few people who liked him. Real quick, I mean, even uh, the the critic uh, Pauline Kill, I think, was very critical of um, Spielberg in some ways. Uh, like when she reviewed Sugarland Express, she wrote, um, "If there is such a thing as movie sense, Spielberg really has it, but he may be so full of it that he doesn't have much else." What? Why are what? what where does this criticism come from uh, when it comes to people like Kill or just other critics? Do you think it's simply just uh, following the trends, or what is it? Well. Just let me tell you a little story I heard when I did my Spielberg research. There's a fellow named Gene Ward Smith who went to high school with Stephen in Saratoga, California, the school he depicts in Fablements. Um, and um, Smith was so smart. He was a mass genius. They let him spend the day in the school library reading books on his own. And he said Spielberg spent a lot of time in the library because he was kind of... Um, uh, discipline problem. He was uh, very unhappy that year as the film shows and, and he would be sent to the library and um, they uh, they would talk a lot and uh, Steve, uh, Smith was interested in movies but he said I took my opinions from things like the Saturday Review and Time Magazine or whatever and I, so I, I was very conventional in my thinking in those days and, but he said Spielberg was not. Here was this kid and he kept talking about Alfred Hitchcock being a, the greatest director and he called him, Spielberg said to Gene, uh, I call him the master. And Gene always remembered that because it was such a statement from a kid. But especially, um, you know, and, and Smith said, you know, back then I I, I thought of Spielberg, uh, Hitchcock, the way people think of Spielberg often as a technically brilliant director with uh, not much to say or whatever, you know, kind of popular entertainer. But he said Spielberg saw Hitchcock as a much deeper artist, which he is. And, you know, we've caught up with that. Obviously, there are more books on Hitchcock than any other director. But um, when I started my research, there there were um, there wasn't a good critical study of Spielberg. And there, there was a short biography uh, by Tony Crowley that came out in, in the 70s that was um, very sketchy. It was mostly based on interviews of Spielberg, you know, quoting him. And it was a fairly good little book, but it was just, it didn't do the job of a real biography. So, you know, I, when I did the Capra book, I spent seven and a half years digging into his life and I was working on Ford for 30 years. And um, I believe in interviewing uh, so-called ordinary people, you know, people who don't get interviewed by film biographers very much. Uh, they do more now. I mean, I kind of helped break the ground for that, I think. Um, because back then, when people did a biography of a director, they'd interview about eight or ten movie stars, and that's about it. And uh, uh, movie stars often don't know a lot about what's going on in a film because they come in and they're focused on themselves. And, uh, you know, an actor does his or her part and, and isn't always there for every every uh, 
day of the shooting. But um, with Capra, I started by interviewing his crew, and they were tremendously helpful. And crew guys really know the director's work as well as anybody. And the actors often don't. Uh, but then I also, I was influenced by Robert Caro's biography of Lyndon Johnson, where he interviewed all kinds of people in Texas, uh, the hill country in Texas where he came from, and schoolmates of his. And he, he had a great opening of 40-some pages where he just talked about what, what it was like for housewives in, in the uh, uh, hill country of Texas before electricity came. Johnson brought electricity to, to the hill country of Texas, and it's a tremendous chapter. made a great Im impact on me, and so I thought, yeah, I'll interview all these kids who knew Frank Capra and, and uh, people who worked on his films and uh, so I interviewed about 175 people for him. And with Spielberg, I interviewed 327 people. Wow. He lived in five different cities. He grew, he was born in Cincinnati. He moved. With, he and his, as the film shows, his father, Arnold, kept getting better and better jobs in the computer field because he was a computer pioneer. He had patents. He was a genius. Uh, they moved to um, Haddon Township, New Jersey, which is near uh, Philadelphia, um, then they moved to Phoenix, Arizona, where he spent a large part of his childhood uh, and youth. And then they moved um, uh, to Saratoga, California, Northern California, where he spent about a year, very unhappy. And then he moved to L.A. And so I interviewed people in all those places, but, which was a lot of work and it's expensive to do that. But fascinating uh, research. And, and since he was relatively young when I did that book, I mean, he was about late 40s, early 50s. Um, you know, all the people who were around, uh, you know, I was able to interview not only um, kids who he grew up with who worked on his films, which was really fascinating to talk to all those people, but also his neighbors, you know, the, the adults in the neighborhood who had, had a, you know, different kind of perspective on him, his school teachers, his babysitter, you know, his mother's friends, his father's friends. I mean, it was really great. I interviewed his father, Arnold, which is a real coup because he almost never got interviewed back then. And he was a, he's a wonderful man. Uh, he gave me great information on the family history in particular. He, he knew the family history. And I also did other genealogical research and, had the benefit of a lot of uh, help on that. And uh, Arnold gave some, you know, priceless comments on Spielberg's uh, youth. He said something that made me very sad, actually. He said, uh, you know more about Steve than I do. Uh, I put that in, in a recent piece I did on the Fablemans and Slate. Um, that was sad because, you know, he, I had found in my research that Arnold's contribution to his son's life was underrated. Um, and I kept talking to these kids who worked on the Spielberg films, and they said, Mr. Spielberg was uh, working with Steven on all these films. And, these are uh, like his little home movies. Yeah, the home, well, amateur films. Um, uh, he started, you know, as the film shows, by filming the train crash uh, to replicate the scene he had seen in The Greatest Show on Earth, the Cecil B. DeMille film. And he filmed his trains crashing because his dad was mad at him for crashing his toy train. So, he thought, I'll do it once, and then I can watch the film over and over again. And But he got more and more into it. And But see, his father was an amateur filmmaker from the 1930s onward. He was into 
radio in the 20s. He built a television set in the early 30s. I mean, you know, and, and he was into movie making. And so Arnold, uh, but he he admitted he was just a kind of typical amateur filmmaker who, who just filmed family vacations and stuff without much uh, finesse. But Stephen kind of took over the camera. But Arnold and Stephen, uh, it was seen as a father-son hobby at the time. That's the way people viewed it. And Stephen's character, Sammy, in the film reacts negatively a couple times when his father calls it a hobby. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I remember uh, seeing in the trailer that his dad says, you know, it's a hobby. And, yeah. you know, Sammy says, you know, can you stop calling it a hobby? Yeah. Yeah, by then he was seeing it as a way of life, a career that he was going to follow. His father kind of uh, tried to talk him out of that. Um, but He was a computer scientist, right? Yeah, computer uh, designer and, and uh, expert who helped, uh, you know, he was really in, in on the ground floor of designing a lot of major computers. And um, uh, He died uh, recently uh, at the age of 104. He was still sharp and he, uh, he worked with Stephen on the survivors of the Shoah Visual History Project and other things. And um, very, very brilliant man. But all these people kept telling me, you know, some of the kids said, I wasn't sure who was directing the film. Was it Mr. Spielberg or Steve? You know, and that was so he was so involved. And um, uh, one thing the film doesn't show uh, is it's, it's pretty accurate in a lot of ways, but it's semi fictionalized. Uh, and he leaves out certain things, I guess, because you can't put it all in in a film. You can put it in a book. But one of the most interesting things Stephen did as a youth was Firelight. He made his first feature in 1963-64, uh, 135-minute science fiction film. It's kind of the precursor of Close Encounters called Firelight. And he made it in 8mm. Uh, and he put sound on it. He had a, a, a system where he could put a sound strip on the film and synchronize the sound and it played only once in a theater in phoenix the the night before they left for uh california and that's not in the film at all but uh, there are pictures of arnold working on the film with steven uh, has pretty elaborate special effects for a kid film but um so steven and his dad worked together and and uh, uh they had some differences because you know steven was a very indifferent student it turned out he had dyslexia my book doesn't quite say that, but I was aware that he had some kind of a uh, cognitive uh, disability of sorts. But some people thought he had uh, 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 Asperger's syndrome, but he finally got tested a few years ago. And it turned out he didn't have Asperger's syndrome. He had dyslexia, and that explains a lot. He, he, there's a wonderful interview with him with Quinn Bradley, who was Ben Bradley's son and Sally um uh, his mother um they uh quinn had a kind of a interview show and he had Stephen on talking about his dyslexia which is very interesting and you can see it online but i have the script of firelight for example the leading lady gave me a copy of the script and Stephen typed it it's just filled with um typos and spelling errors and grammatical errors and you know uh, he, he was very imaginative, but he was a poor student. And one of his teachers told me that um, she would always see him. He would be holding uh, the book under his uh, desk, you know, right below the desk. 
and he had a copy of American Cinematographer magazine on top of the book, and he'd be reading that during class. This is like fifth grade, you know. And um, she was always kind of frustrated by that, but she she was kind of amused by it too because she knew that he was a smart kid. Uh, but he'd get poor grades, and the father would give him a hard time. And Stephen was not interested in science. His father wanted him to kind of get go into his field, I guess. And um, they so they had a kind of growing schism, but. Uh, another thing I found out, this is what you find out when you do the research, um, that Stephen often said, you know, his father and he didn't get along. Well, they got along pretty well uh, for, in those years with some friction, but um, the movie depicts him and his mother being very close, and they were, but um, it shows, you know, he got along okay with his father in the film, but I think the Arnold's character is somewhat underplayed in a sense he comes off as a very kind of meek uh passive kind of fellow and i i found arnold a very solid very likable very sensible hard-working guy i mean he admitted he was a workaholic and he kind of neglected the family to some extent and that bothered Stephen a lot but um they didn't really have their schism until later uh when they i went to the courthouse in san jose and i got the divorce papers which nobody had bothered to do I was going to say the divorce seems like it's a huge part of his life. Yeah, you can tell that from his earlier films, you know, that it's the primal trauma that fuels all of his work. There's often family uh, ruptures in his films, and he often deals with um, irresponsible father figures of one kind or another all through many of his films but he also deals with irresponsible mother figures in some of them, especially early on and then later on. What happened was um Stephen's father got custody of Stephen in the divorce which surprised me it's counterintuitive you know from what you heard and they moved to LA together the film shows that um they both moved in uh, around June of 65 and um father was working for a company down there with, with Max Polevsky and Stephen was trying to get into films and um he had an apprenticeship at Universal he doesn't quite explain that in the in the film i think he kind of believes the mythical version now which is that he walked walked onto a walked through the gated universal wearing a sport coat carrying a briefcase said hi to the guards and they let him walk through and he set up an empty office that's all bullshit uh i interviewed a lady who we worked with there named julie raymond she said it's horse shit actually is the word she used what he did was in summer in the in, in 64 he um his father got him a connection at universal here again the father had an important role in stephen's life which stephen didn't want to admit uh, people often don't want to admit that they had family help you know getting into films but his father called a guy at universal he knew who was the head of computers there and the guy said well you know the person he ought to meet is a fellow named chuck silvers who was the head librarian their film librarian so stephen went in to see him on a, on a vacation and uh Chuck Silvers, who I interviewed, is a wonderful guy. Um, he 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 recognized Stephen's talent right away. He saw some of his early films. He said it was like meeting the young Leonardo da Vinci. And he was stunned by this kid's talent. And he said he was really charming, but he was very immature in every way, except in his filmmaking. So he was kind of a mentor to him. And he said, I couldn't give Stephen a paying job, but I gave him an unpaid apprenticeship. And so Stephen, in the summer of 64, uh, worked at Universal in Silver's office. He didn't have a desk or an office. 
he sat next to Julie Raymond's desk. She was Chuck's assistant. And he would run errands, you know, like to the Technicolor Laboratory or to some other part of the uh, big sprawling universal complex. And uh, <clears throat> by by doing that kind of thing, he was able to go uh, wander on studio streets and meet people. He'd see Charlton Heston or Cary Grant, Rock Hudson, walking down the street, and he'd walk up to them and say, uh, can I have lunch with you? And he was a very charming young man, and so they all said, sure, and, and he got to know these people, and he would go on sets of uh, TV shows and films. He was he got to see Hitchcock shooting Torn Curtain, but Hitchcock threw him out uh, eventually. He never got to see Hitchcock shoot anything. He wouldn't let Sp Spielberg in the set of Family Plot. That must uh, be absolutely um, heartbreaking for Spielberg, given that, you know, I mean, Alfred Hitchcock yeah. seems like it was his, that was his... You know, he called him master. Like Yeah, that's the his... master. He would have loved to have met him. I was on the set of Family Plot for three days because I pulled strings. Oh, really? Strings. I yeah, actually I... love that movie a lot. <laughs> it is a charming film. I, I, I pulled strings because when I first asked to go on there, I, I was on sets of a lot of films. That's what made my variety job like my film school. I, I interviewed anybody I wanted to. And I back in those days, you could go on sets. Now they discourage the press from going on sets. It's much more corporate now. Um but back then, uh, Hitchcock said no, and then my editor, Tom Pryor, knew him, and he called him up and said, come on, let this, let Joe on the set. And so I spent three days there watching him shoot. Well, I, I spent two days at the studio and one day on location when he shot the scene where the bishop is kidnapped from a church. And it was just great to watch him shoot. Um, but it was funny, Jaws had just come out, and uh, this was the summer of 75, and Hitchcock would be sitting in his chair, and I would notice every day at around noon, he would get the box office reports from the day before, and uh, they tell him how much Jaws did, and he was very excited. And and because uh, he he was he and his wife were like the third biggest shareholders in MCA Incorporated, so he made a lot of money off Jaws. But one time, Bruce Dern, who was a very funny guy, got along great with Hitchcock. They'd sit around laughing and. Um, there was a set of a San Francisco garage and alleyway that they had it in the sound station. They were kind of kidding about what they should write on it. Hitchcock said they should put some graffiti on the on the wall, and uh, or Dern said we should put some graffiti on the wall. Hitchcock said, "No, Bruce, I knew what we should put." Uh, I, I, I'm sorry, I'm screwing it up. Dern said they should put the head of the, you know, the scene of the shark with the girl and the, you know, from the ad with the shark going, ah, you know, and Hitchcock laughed. He said, no, Bruce, I know what we should put. Fuck MCA. And they both roared with laughter. And uh, so he was fully aware of Spielberg. I think he saw him as a kind of a rival. Hitchcock turned down Jaws, actually. They offered it to him. Um, but, you know, he, he, he was um, maybe competitive and, Whatever. But anyway, so back uh, when Stephen went to uh, L.A., uh, he got into films at Universal and there was only so much Chuck could do for him. He was this unpaid assistant and, and um, he was frustrated. He, and finally, uh, Chuck said, you know, nobody nobody else was watching Stephen's eight millimeter films or even his 16 millimeter stuff he shot in college at Cal State Long Beach. Um, Chuck was the only guy who would watch it because in Hollywood, I remember this, nobody wanted to watch amateur films, you know. So Chuck said, the only way you're going to get anybody else to see your stuff is make a film in 35 millimeter. And he said, 
don't come back until you've done that. And there was a, another guy he met through Chuck called Dennis Hoffman, young man who had a commercial studio, a little commercial studio, and he also managed a rock group called October Country. And he had a little money, and he told me he put $20,000 approximately into this film, Amblin, that Stephen made, 26-minute short. Wonderful film, beautiful film. And it's uh, without uh, dialogue because they couldn't afford it. And um, so the two conditions that Dennis imposed were, we can't have dialogue and you have to use my rock group for the soundtrack. So it has a, a good, I rather like the rock group, it's pretty good. And um, so they made this film in 35 millimeter, Alan, Alan Davio shot it and Steven put it together and he showed it to Chuck who was overwhelmed with how great this film was. And he, he said he showed it to the older guys who were editors at Universal. And he said the old guys were crying. It was so beautiful, you know, and they said it was the perfect motion picture. And so he thought, how do I help Steven get into Universal? He said, uh, uh, well, features might be hard, but TV might be a good route for him. So he he knew Sid Sheinberg was the head of Universal TV, later became the head of theatrical, and was Stephen's mentor for many years on Jaws and Schindler's List and a lot of things. But um, Sheinberg didn't know Spielberg at the time. But so what Silvers did was he gave the film to the projectionist who showed rushes every night at 9 o'clock to Sheinberg. And he said, put this film on, don't tell him about it, just stick it on and uh, he'll watch it. So the next morning, Silver said he arrived, there were eight phone messages there. One was, they're all from Scheinberg. One said, uh, who is Steven Spielberg? Where is Steven Spielberg? Get me Steven Spielberg. I want to see Steven Spielberg this afternoon. You know. So he called Steven and he said, uh, he was living with some cousins and he said, uh, put on a sport coat and tie come in and see Mr. Scheinberg and call him sir. He said, he calls everybody sir, and I want you to be very polite and come in and whatever he says, just say, yes, sir, you know. So he came in and Scheinberg said, sir, I liked your movie. And Spielberg said, thank you, sir. And he Scheinberg was very smart. He said in an interview, he not only realized Stephen was very good with the camera, but he had a very good sense of uh, casting and directing actors. And I think Spielberg's least... Um, celebrated talent is he's a terrific actor's director um there's a Why young do you guy think people miss that about him that he is a good actor's director i think well they're so overwhelmed by the technique you know that they don't notice the people in the films uh, they take it for granted i guess uh, maybe they think that the actors direct themselves or something but um th there's a guy named anson williams who was a young actor in a spielberg directed tv show and uh, Scheinberg put him on TV. And let me just say, when, when he was in the office, um, Scheinberg said, um, sir, would you like to direct television? Spielberg said, well, I'm going to um, Cal State Long Beach. I'm a junior. I don't know. And, and Scheinberg said, sir, do you want to direct uh, films or do you want to be a college student? And Spielberg said, I want to be, I want to direct films. So he signed into a seven-year contract to direct TV and he did a lot of apprentice work, uh, directed Owen Marshall and Marcus Welby and uh, the psychiatrist, other things, and they moved up to TV movies. But Anson Williams was in the Owen Marshall show as a young guy, and he later became a director himself. And he told me a wonderful thing. He said, you know, any director can get a great performance out of Al Pacino, but only Steven Spielberg can get a great performance out of a rubber puppet.
I thought that was a great comment. When you look at E.T., I mean, he, he, he manages to make that character seem like a real living creature with really complex uh, thought processes. And, you know, that was put together piece by piece. And uh, the acting in his films is always uniformly excellent all the way up and down the line. And he has carte blanche on who he can cast. So, you, you know, um, after the early days, he didn't get stuck with anybody that he didn't want to work with, basically. Um, so that is one of his great talents. And uh, so he, uh, I interviewed Mike Metavoy, who became a well-known studio executive and producer. And he was Stephen's agent back in the early days of TV. And he said, uh, Stephen got very frustrated doing TV, but he said, that's what made him. And I said, well, why do you think that? And he said, well, because it led to Jaws, you know. And I, I met Spielberg the first time I met him. I met him twice. Um, when Jaws was finished, they had a press availability for him uh, one night at the Universal Commissary. And members of the press would sit around with him. I remember sitting around for an hour or two talking to him when he was 27 years old, I guess he was, uh, just chatting. I don't remember what he said, you know, but it was a very casual encounter. Um and then I met him very briefly once at a party in uh, in the 90s. But when I did my book, I never do authorized biographies because they're always compromised if you do those. And so I, I took the precaution of interviewing 100 people before I approached Spielberg. So it was a fait accompli, in other words. And, um, I had a lot of problems with Capra in my Capra book. He, I, he, I interviewed him for about a year, but... Uh, he and uh, his sons and his archivist, Janine Basinger at Wesleyan University, and my own editor, Bob Gottlieb at Knopf, tried to stop the book. Or neuter- I think you were told by the editor, you know, the uh, the, the slasher will, will slash or something yeah. along those lines. Yeah, I knew I was in big trouble because he said, um, you, know, you know it all, you may know too much. And this was early in the process. What a thing to say, you, may, you know it all, you may know too much. Isn't that a biographer's job is to know it all? And for, how did Gottlieb know that I knew it all? Uh, you may know too much. And he said, the slasher will go to work. You may regret you ever met me. And um, I wrote that down. I wrote a book called Frankly Unmasking Frank Capper about the four-year legal battle. I had to get that book out. It was They were either trying to stop it or to... Uh, uh, sort of neutered the book by heavy editing and cutting out my revelations about Capra being an informer during the blacklist period and things like that. Um, but was uh, was working on the Spielberg uh, book because you and I have talked about the uh, Capra book and and what mm-hmm. went into that Capra Unmasked, uh, where you tell the whole story of it. Uh, was this less of a? I mean, it sounds like the Capra book was a Kafkaesque nightmare. Yeah, um, it was. But it, yeah. It, this uh, Spielberg book. It sounds like it, it, it may have been more rewarding in some ways um, or not as yeah. nightmarish. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, of the three uh, subjects, uh, John Ford gave me an interview for an hour, which was unusual. It was the last day of his career. Uh, it's kind of like the ending of the Fablements, where David Lynch is wonderful as Ford. Um, I had a similar experience. We could talk about that. But the Spielberg book was in some ways the uh, most helpful because Spielberg, when I went to him through his very nice um, publicity guy, Marvin Levy, who's been with him a long time, and he's a real gentleman. I've, I've dealt with him a lot over the years. And uh, I said, uh, you know, I'm, I'm doing an unauthorized biography, but I'd like to interview uh, Stephen. And he said, well, 
Stephen knows your work and he's he's he respects it. He's not going to interfere with you, but he he doesn't talk to people who are doing books about him. Uh, so he won't talk to you. And he does talk. To, he he cooperates on authorized books. He 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 helps put out books about his films usually. And there was even a kind of an authorized biography at, long after mine that some somebody did, which was had a lot of unusual photographs and and had some interviews with family members that were pretty good but otherwise it's pretty thin but um i i really think he didn't like the fact that it was unauthorized because he didn't have control of it he's he's called himself a control freak and i i would say i'm a control freak too so it's two control freaks meeting each other uh but what he did was he um marvin levy said he's not going to interfere with you and uh he said, if you have any questions, send them along. So a week later, I put together a letter and I said, uh, I'd like a list of all his amateur films, if you wouldn't mind, and uh, the dates and all that. And he never, they, they never responded. So I put together the first full list of his amateur films from all the interviews I did. It's in the back of my book and people have copied it since then. But um, what happened was when they called uh, Stephen's office, to, some people called and say, said, should I talk to McBride? And they were told I was kosher, which I thought was very nice. And uh, that helped open doors. Um, I, I called his father out of the blue and his father, very amiable. He said, sure, yeah, come on, we'll talk, you know. And so we had a great interview. And then Stephen heard about it I, I, uh, within a week or so. And... Uh, was not happy his father talked to talk to me and he told his mother not to talk to me she was the only one i know who he stopped from talking to me chuck silver said they asked him to to wait because they said stephen's going to do an, a, a an authorized biography at some point and silvers was impatient he said well i've been waiting all these years to tell my story and i'm not going to wait so he, he gave me an interview and um other people you know the people who were most cooperative were the ones who worked with them early on they were very happy to be interviewed and tell that that they got to work with Stephen and told good stories the people who were most reluctant tended to be actors who had worked with them recently actors tend to be kind of timid people in some ways and anybody i think who had a chance of working with him again may have felt mm, you know i don't want to say the wrong thing or whatever so a lot of actors i, I wrote I contacted everybody like uh, Richard Dreyfus. I never heard back from him. And, but I got to some of the actors and some of the crew people, um, cameramen and uh, production designers and editors and people who really knew his work. And so I interviewed an awful lot of people. But um, uh, his mother, he, he told his mother not to talk to me. And I called her anyway. And uh, she's, she's, she was a super nice person, as everybody knows, real effervescent character like in the movie. And and she was at her um, restaurant, the Milky Way. She had a kosher dairy restaurant in L.A. And she was very, very sweet. And she, she said, I've been told not to talk to you. And uh, oh, is, this the, is this when she responds, when you ask her why? And she says, yeah. oh, because God told me. <laughs> yeah, she said, the gods. The, I said, who told me? And she said, the gods, the gods. And I said, Stephen. And she kind of chuckled. And she said, well, you know, um, good luck to you. You know, I wish you well with it. And. I didn't want to pester her or anything, so I, I let it go. But she had given many interviews. She became a, kind of a personality in the media after E.T. Somebody discovered that she was a fun guest. She was even on the Johnny Carson show once being interviewed, and she was uh, she, 
she was interviewed by many press people. So I, I was able to find a lot of great quotes from uh, Mrs. Spielberg, uh, Leah. Uh, Adler, she had married Bernie Adler, who is the character Seth Rogen plays in the film. Um, so I got a lot of quotes from her, but Arnold, his father had never been interviewed, so my interview with him was really precious. Um, but he wouldn't, I called him again, and he had, he had said he would lend me some family pictures. And then I called him a week later, he said, well, I've been told, you know, my son uh, would prefer that I not... Um, give you those pictures obviously they had talked and and uh he said i have to defer to my son's wishes and i said i understand you know thank you thank you so much and, uh I, you know but i got the interview with him and um so it was really a, a just a, a very well researched book but there were there were some gaps because some people wouldn't talk to me but even even then you know somebody like richard dreyfus or uh goldie hawn or whatever um they had given interviews to the media when they made these films, so I was able to quote all kinds of stuff from them. And I wrote this piece in Slate about the Fablemans, and they asked me to comment as a biographer on how accurate it is compared to his life. Now, it is it is a semi-autobiographical film. He's not called Steven Spielberg. He's called Sammy Fableman. Um, and when I first heard that, I wondered why he was doing it. And then I thought, well, Truffaut did that with 400 Blows. You know, he's... The kid is not called Francois Truffaut. He's called Antoine Duanel. And so right. I remember you talk about this in the article. Go on. Yeah. Yeah. Some liberties taken. You know, and for example, 400 Blows is Spielberg's favorite director when he was a uh, young man was Truffaut and me too. My two favorite modern directors are Truffaut and Spielberg. Um, well, so they, much so we end up seeing Truffaut in yeah. Close Encounters. <laughs> Yeah, he, he loved Truffaut, and I got to know Truffaut very well in Hollywood. And uh, um, so, um, you know, I thought, well, Truffaut did that. And also, Truffaut grew up during the Nazi occupation. And when he made 400 Blows, you know, it was a very low-budget film. It cost something like $80,000, and he couldn't afford to recreate the uh, occupation period. He does that in his later film, The Last Metro. But um, he made it in contemporary Paris, so it's obviously somewhat... Uh, distance and there's, there's something to be said for some aesthetic distance sometimes and and spielberg in in uh, the fablements he sticks to the facts uh, quite often i mean it's pretty accurate uh, generally speaking i but, was gonna uh, ask were you surprised how close he you to the facts at times uh, yes and no i mean he does mythologize his life to some extent i mentioned that he made up this story about how he got into the studio um but he he omits that whole period in the film. Um, he omits firelight. He omits other things. But as I say, when you make a film about your own life or any any kind of film about history, you have to telescope things and leave things out, and you focus on things that are uh, you you think are most important. I was kind of surprised. And you, I was going to say real quick. You also sometimes you have to compress uh, things, and sometimes you do have to mythologize to get it maybe deeper truths, right? Yeah, yes, that's definitely true. There's nothing nothing wrong with that. Um, sometimes I, you know, I don't know for sure, but there's a scene in the movie where there's a tornado coming and um, they're in um, New Jersey and the mother and they all run outside and um, the mother jumps in the car and takes the kids with her in the car. She's all excited. Let's drive into the tornado. You know, it shows kind of what a wild and adventurous person she was. Uh, it's an interesting scene. It doesn't really go anywhere, but um, it kind of shows 
Mitzi is she's called um, her um, her kind of wild um, creative side and somewhat dangerous side. But Stephen, one of my favorite stories about him that I found from his time in New Jersey was some of the neighbor kids talked about there was a tornado one day and they had built a um, sort of a miniature golf course in one of the kids' yards with little flags and stuff. And so when the tornado came, they're all hiding in the basement like like I did when I was a kid in Wisconsin, except Stephen, little Stevie, they called him back then. He ran outside and he was running around the golf course, swinging his arms like this. And one of the people said he became a tornado. I thought that was a wonderful image of this uh very imaginative kid and i wonder if he took that incident and, and and gave it to his mother that's one thing people do creatively or maybe she she also did the thing but uh, there are some things that he rewrote for example um there's a imp very important scene uh, the most subtle scene in the film where he, he made a movie called senior sneak day which i found all about i never got to see the film uh it's kind of disappeared as far as i know it was the last um it was the big party they had at the end of senior year in saratoga all the kids went to the uh, santa cruz boardwalk it's kind of like coney island and they goofed around on the beach and stephen made a film of it and he showed it to the class and people liked it and that, that was his real motive for being a filmmaker he wanted to be popular because he was a nerdy outsider kid who was jewish and he was um he couldn't compete with the jocks and the cool guys or whatever. So he, he competed by, by making films and putting his friends, even his enemies into films. One of the great things he did was he put people who bullied him into films. And, and uh, I kind of missed that a little bit too, because um, what he does in the Fablemans, he, he shows this film escape to nowhere, which was a world war two film he made in 1962. Uh, 40 minute film very ambitious he won a prize for it and he has a good scene of the filming and he has this really big kid who looks kind of like john wayne he's a jock obviously and he it shows him directing this guy and the guy kind of you know he's just sort of there you know and, he, and stephen starts trying to tell him what he wants from his acting and it's it's really nice because you see this young guy kind of learning to direct an actor you know and he communicates that he wants this guy to feel sad and maybe a little guilty because he's the squadron leader. He led his squadron into a massacre. And uh, that's, that's an early example of the irresponsible father figure in a Spielberg film. So this guy is saying, well, uh, gee, you want me to, what do you want me to do? And he said, you, so you want me to like act? <laughs> and then Steven said, yeah, I want you to do that. You know? And so the guy winds up giving a really good performance. And, um, but in real life, Stephen, well, first of all, I interviewed that guy from my book. And oh, really? um, yeah, he said, I, I actually, I didn't put this in the article, but it's in my book. He said, um, well, I, I didn't really act in that film at all. I, there was no acting involved. I just kind of stood there and Stephen would zoom into my face every once in a while and I'd look around and, you know, so that kind of scene was embellished. And I was always trying to find out who the bullies were who beat him up. And nobody would tell me because it's like, you know, they're trying to be protective. And this fellow, uh, you know, Stephen talked about putting uh, one of the bullies at Phoenix uh, Arcadia, Arcadia High School into the film and neutralizing him by making him uh, uh, a character in the film. And, and uh, they didn't exactly become friends, but they were 
the guy stopped pushing his head into the toilet, you know, or the urinal. Um, I, I so I wasn't sure if this fellow was was actually one of the bullies or not. So um, I'm not quite sure. But so there it appears that he rewrote his life to add that element of I'm directing this guy. The guy starts acting really well, etc. And then later in Saratoga, he shows um, he doesn't show any of the Phoenix high school scenes or grade school, which I kind of miss because he had some anti-Semitic abuse in um, in Phoenix. Uh, I, I was going to say, how much did anti-Semitism play a role in his life? Because I know you you interviewed people or talked to people in the book that would talk about how, you know, I, I think you interviewed someone that was um, or quote someone that was uh, grew up in, in the house directly behind the Spielbergs. Mm-hmm. And um, she remembers, you know, a neighborhood boy drawing swastikas on the sidewalk and, you know, uh, one neighbor family yelling, you know, the Spielbergs are dirty Jews. And yeah. it sounds like he really experienced a lot of anti-Semitism, um, you know, in his life in, in those early days. Yeah, I interviewed, for example, the people who live next door, the mother and the daughter. The daughter by then was, when I interviewed her, you know, middle-aged woman. And she she uh, made some anti-Semitic remarks to me about Jews, you know, and she, she said, well, the Spielbergs, the mother said, well, we didn't have much to do with the Spielbergs. They were they kind of kept to themselves. And then the, the daughter said, well, <clears throat> uh, you know, Jews, uh, Jews are like that, that, that tribe. She said, they, uh, they kind of keep to themselves and, uh, uh, you know, and, and we, we didn't mind not talking to them. And it was really clearly anti-Semitic remark. And, um, Leah said that some of the neighbor kids uh, were uh, shouting the Spielbergs are dirty Jews, the Spielbergs are dirty Jews. So Stephen took peanut butter and put peanut butter all over the windows of the, the house. And she thought that was great, you know. Um, so there were incidents like that in, 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 in the schools. There were some incidents. and um, But that, that was another motive that made him be a filmmaker to be accepted. And the film shows that yeah. real quick. It's interesting that you would say that uh, these people would talk about the Spielbergs as, oh, you know, they're Jewish, therefore they want to stay with their tribe. But really, uh, especially in reading your book, I mean, you're portraying Spielberg as someone who, I mean, he he wanted almost to like assimilate. He wanted to be accepted yeah. by all the Wasp kids, and he wanted to be the popular kid. Yeah, that comes across in the film to some extent. I mean, it shows him, for example, uh, making a film with the Boy Scouts, which he he did make some films with his Boy Scout friends. And it just doesn't show him at school or in the neighborhood. But he didn't shoot in Phoenix at all. But he he shot the Phoenix stuff in Southern California. But um, uh, it shows him with the the Boy Scouts are all thrilled and happy to to be in the film. And, And one reviewer said, one of the negative reviewers said, where are the black people? Where are the Hispanic people in this film? Well, if you look at those scenes, a lot of the kids are Hispanic in, in that sequence because, you know, it's Arizona. A lot of uh, Mexican-American kids live there, and he was friends with them, and, and and they're very prominently featured. One of them is the sheriff in this Western that he makes, you know. Uh, so reviewers are often just blind to what they don't want to see in Spielberg or, the, you know, it's there, but they can't see it. But um, yeah, in, in my book, I, I trace in, in great detail how he he was he said he was ashamed of being Jewish as a kid because he was internalizing the uh, animosity he was getting, and he he wanted to be he said a Gentile uh, very deeply. He wanted to fit in, and the uh, the film shows, for example, uh, 
the neighborhood they lived in in New Jersey, um, everybody has Christmas lights on their home except the Spielbergs. And the kid says, yeah, our home is the home without the lights, he says in kind of a negative way. And then it shows a nice scene of them lighting the Hanukkah lamp. And in the background, you see through the window houses with Christmas lights. So that makes that point. Um, but there was a scene that is not in the film that Stephen talked about uh, where he apparently, at least he says he did, he went out on the porch in New Jersey wearing a white sheet to look like Jesus. And he had his sister Anne uh, with a rotating color wheel. You know, sometimes if you remember these things where you could get this wheel that would have different colors and flashlights. And so she flashed the lights on Stephen and he, he stood in a kind of a crucified position and played Jesus, you know, as the cars went by to do his own display, which is very interesting. But I asked his father about that and he said, I don't remember that at all. But he said, that's the kind of thing Stephen would do. But he said, if I had known about it, I would have stopped it, you know. Uh, so I'm not totally sure that happened or whether Stephen imagined it. Um, but he, he really tried to assimilate. And there's another incident I thought would have been good in the film, but obviously you can't put all this stuff in. But his grandfather, Fivel Posner, was a, a very um, a guy from Russia, and he was uh, um, traditional Orthodox Jew. And uh, he... Uh, one day he was staying with the family and he, he came out on the front porch or front yard and started calling Stephen. He called him Shmuel, Shmuel, Shmuel. That's Stephen's Hebrew name. And Stephen was playing football with some friends. And he was really embarrassed that this old world grandfather was calling him Shmuel. And one of the kids said, is he calling you? And Stephen said, no, I don't know who that is or whatever. And he denied his own grandfather. He said he felt bad about that, obviously. Um, but over the years, he, um, you know, I mean, one of the odd things about his films, if you look at them, is they're full of Christian iconography. Uh, I mean, in Amistad, for example, there's a scene where the um, African captives are sitting in jail, and they actually, they're reading a picture book of the life of Jesus. It, he takes the time to show you the entire life of Jesus in pictures, and they're, they're looking at it like in wonderment. One guy's kind of skeptical, he's saying... He, he rose up into the heavens. I mean, like, he doesn't buy this kind of thing. And the other guy's really into it. And uh, so he, all through his films, E.T., for example, is, is very full of Christ par, uh, parallels. And when he did the film, somebody actually did a pamphlet about E.T. and Jesus being similar. When you think about it, he's this alien guy comes to Earth and he's um, lost on Earth and, and somebody takes him in in a shed you know, like Jesus, and he has a glowing heart, and he can cure people with his touch, and he's basically crucified and killed by the authorities, and then he rises from the dead, and he goes, flies back to where he came from. I mean, it's just full, Stephen said when he and Melissa Matheson, the writer of the film, were working on it, they kind of looked at each other, and they said, geez, you know, this is turning into kind of a strange uh, story about Jesus, and, you know, this Jewish filmmaker making this film about Jesus, what are people going to think? And they both kind of laughed and just went with it. But he does that all through his career. Um, I take that as a sign of him wanting to fit in. And it was only later that he got into overtly Jewish themes. Um, I, I, at a synagogue in LA once, I did a 
presentation on Schindler's List with a friend of mine who is an Auschwitz survivor, Eva David. It was a very, very moving uh, time. But uh, I said this is Spielberg's coming out as Jewish in film. And one one old guy put his hand up. He said, well, actually, how about an American Tale? You know, the animated film that he made. And the guy was right. Stephen had produced an American Tale in which the mouse is called Fievel after his grandfather and their Jewish mice come to America, you know. I was going to add to that. Um, and this is interesting because I feel like something that, you know, I've always been a fan of, of Steven Spielberg's, I guess, the movies that people would call his popcorn movies, right? Like Jaws um, and whatnot. But, I, you know, it's funny because I think people will write those movies off as just, oh, you know, this is Spielberg, the entertainer. This is an art. But I, I think there is deeper things going on in a lot of those films. And I think uh, whether we're talking about E.T. or whether we're talking about Jaws, I think you do get a sense of a director who's dealing with issues of feeling otherized um, and also feeling maybe persecuted in some ways. You know, for as as, as much as people may look at his films very uh, schmaltzy, especially those early films, I mean, there there, there is sort of this um, element of like the dark side of America and the suburbs in sure. everything from uh, Jaws to Poltergeist, even Close Encounters, that scene where um, Richard Dreyfuss's Roy is sort of going crazy. Uh, there is this sense of um, persecution and paranoia that I, I think maybe Spielberg relates to that in some way. Oh, yeah. All through his work, there's a lot of darkness. And um, I don't think he's that schmaltzy, really. I mean, there is honest sentiment, which is different from sentimentality. Uh, people disagree on that, and there is room for disagreement. But when they say he's a schmaltzy sentimental director, I, I take exception. I think he's he's really dealing dealing with honest sentiment and uh, actuality. I mean, for example, in The Color Purple, which is a very powerful film emotionally, I think, um, Alice Walker wrote the novel, uh, was a little wary of, you know, a young white guy directing her book, but she, she realized he, he, he understood it because she said he's he's an outsider as well like uh he makes minority films and she said et is i recognize immediately he's a minority creature you know he's a he's a dark-skinned um, alien creature trying to cope in this hostile environment and she said i understood that stephen was a minority filmmaker and she said there were some things he didn't totally understand about the black experience so she had to kind of you know help him which is good and uh, she wrote a whole book about it called The Same River Twice, which is very interesting about the making of her film into a her book into a film. And Spielberg got absolutely uh, uh, attacked for making that film. Some of the most vicious reviews he ever got, although it was a popular success. And to his credit, he um, every time he makes a film about black people, which he's done several times, he gets horribly abused. And to his credit, he doesn't stop. I mean, Amistad, I think, is one of his greatest films, and uh, the critics just pilloried that film, and it's, they didn't understand it, they, they trashed it. There was a, a, a black woman novelist who sued, claiming he had plagiarized a novel she wrote, and that's all they wrote about in their reviews, like, he's plagiarized this book, you know, and that invalidated the whole film. She eventually settled out of court for unknown amount and, and said she thought the book had, uh, Spielberg had not plagiarized her book, but um, that didn't matter to these people. And 
Stephen did a, he had a black protagonist in a TV show called Make Me Laugh, which was another night gallery show with Godfrey Cambridge was the main character and uh, comedian, played a comedian. And then um, his episode of the Twilight Zone film, Kick the Can, Scatman Crothers is really the main character. And, and um, so he keeps making films about uh, African-Americans and, and other, other groups besides uh, Jewish people. Uh, I mean, in some ways he displaces the, the Jewish otherness feeling onto other groups and, and uh, not only uh, ethnic groups, but people, let's say Sugarland Express is a very serious film. It's a tragic film and it, it flopped. It was one of his few commercial flops back then. His first uh, mainstream theatrical feature, even though he had made a couple of uh, TV movies that were feature length and he had made Firelight, but Sugarland Express, Express played in theaters. It's about a um, lower class couple. So again, they're outsiders and, and they their kid is taken away from them by the authorities. And so Goldie Hawn is this very reckless, irresponsible mother who wants to get her kid back uh, by kidnapping him. And she breaks her husband out of jail <clears throat> and he's just about to be released too. So it's very foolish to break out of jail when you're a month or whatever it is from being free because you'll go back for a long time. In fact, I he was going to say, real quick. go on, I'm he, sorry. Well, he gets killed in the film, which is a real shocker for the audiences. I, I talked to people who worked on the film and they said when the film previewed in San Jose, um, people were furious at the film, especially when these two sharpshooters are brought in to kill the husband. And they were just, they just felt great animosity because they thought it was Goldie Hawn movie. You think it was going to be frivolous and fun. I think the problem was partly the casting. I mean, she does a really good job playing the part, but if he had cast a different actress who wasn't identified as this ditzy com comedian, uh, the film might've been uh, well received, but also the, the advertising, they didn't know how to advertise it. But my point is that that's, that's a film about dispossessed, um, you know, lower class people who were kind of shunned by society. So you can go through his work. But when you mentioned suburbia, Vincent Canby of the New York Times called Spielberg the poet of suburbia, which is true. Uh, but people tend to think he romanticizes suburbia, but it's far from the case. I mean, he... yeah, I, I was going to say real quick, one movie. I know he's not credited as director on it, although I mm -hmm. think he was involved with that. You know the movie I'm going to mention. Yeah. Uh, Poltergeist. I mean, I think Poltergeist is really yeah. sort of a dark side of suburbia movie. Oh, yeah. That's you know, as and, dark and as... Jaws. I mean, yeah. Jaws is a movie about you know, the idyllic little town, but, you know, it's completely corrupt, right? I mean, the, yeah. the mayor doesn't care about, you know, the shark killing people. No, we have to have the, the parade or the fair, you know? Yeah, and then in the um, uh, home of the, of the um, uh, police chief, uh, he and his wife have tensions, although Spielberg took out a... Uh, adultery subplot in the in the book which kind of is distracting but uh, close encounters is a great example that to me is one of spielberg's really best films and that's that's his personal film as he ever made uh, uh I, I wanted to ask about that what what is it yeah. about because i even feel very touched by that movie close encounters what do you think it is about that movie that is so powerful well you know i mean well there are a number of things going on um the film was made during the Watergate period, and um, 
it, it's, he, he conceived it originally as a UFO movie about, about Watergate is the way he thought of it, by which he meant the government is very corrupt, hiding the truth about UFOs, which, you know, there's been this controversy over a long period of time about they, they don't release all the information that they have that is kind of hard to hard to decide upon. And so he wanted that to be the focus. It became a little less overtly political, but it's still in the film. You know, they close off a big part of Wyoming and they lie to the public about it. And uh, they don't want the public to know that this spaceship is landing. And uh, But it was, uh, Carl Jung wrote a book called Flying Saucers. And I read that book, I just was curious. And I thought, wow, this really applies to, uh, to uh, Close Encounters. He said, Jung thought that people in in the modern world no longer believe in God. Of course, he was generalizing. A lot of people still do, but that we'd become more godless. And so we, but the human race wants some kind of a divinity or higher power. You know, it's deep, deep within us. And so what we did was we 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 created a mechanical god. You know, UFOs. He didn't quite believe in UFOs, but. He said that the whole myth of flying saucers is a substitute for God in the modern world. That's a very, very good point, I think. He, he called it a, um, you know, gods from the skies who were mechanical gods for the machine industrial age. And he also made the point that he said that um, belief in that tends to happen during periods of crisis. It comes out in periods of crisis, like uh, the flying saucer story in Roswell, New Mexico, 47, the year I was born, right after Spielberg was born, um, that came right right in the period of the great uh, uh, crisis feeling about the Cold War and the Russians and the atomic bomb and everything. And, and then Watergate again, you know, to set this in the period of Watergate. Um, he said people, uh, it, it appeals to people from uh, broken families, he said, too, because they want some kind of a uh, paternal figures. They want some kind of reassuring uh, myth, you know. And and most of the uh, UFO movies before Spielberg's, the, the aliens have been uh, hostile, except uh, The Day of the Earth Stood Still is, is a good exception. He liked that film a lot. And um, he thought, as other people have said, if if there are aliens coming to visit us that they're that advanced, that could come that far, why would they want to come and kill us? Why would they be hostile? They'd be higher intelligence than we are. So, but it's very this again the minority theme. Aliens in his films, whether it's the Africans coming to America in Amistad or um, African Americans in Color Purple or or the the aliens in Close Encounters. They're portrayed in a very positive way by Spielberg because um, his his grandparents were immigrants and they came from Russia and Poland. And John F. Kennedy called us a nation of immigrants. And uh, so Spielberg is, is of the liberal immigrant descent uh, mindset that believes that immigration is good for us, you know. And in today's world, it's a very hot topic. There's a lot of xenophobia has reared its ugly head a lot in recent years. And Spielberg is um, proselytizing for accepting aliens. And it's interesting, in in uh, Close Encounters, they come in a ship. And in Amistad, they come in a ship. It happens to be a boat. But it's, Amistad means friend friendship in Spanish. And somebody pointed out it's friend 
ship. It's a ship full of friends, you know, just like aliens in uh, Close Encounters. So it's about the human race coming to have a good rapport with people from another uh, planet. And uh, uh, it's all about communication. And, and Amistad, too, if you look at those two films, they're all about communication. How do we communicate with outsiders and other the other? And do we react by shooting them or do we react by learning their language and trying to talk to them? And um, there's a line, a woman named Millie Teeger, who I interviewed, who is Leah's good friend in Cincinnati, said when she saw Close Encounters, she said, I thought Stephen has made a movie about his mommy and daddy because she said, there's Arnold with the big spaceship with uh, the colored lights and everything. And there's Leah with the music because Leah was a concert pianist, as you can see in The Fablements. And so the aliens come and they communicate with lights and music. And she said, that's Arnold and Leah. Stephen was putting that together. That's a very shrewd insight. And when Spielberg appeared on Inside the Actors Studio with James Lipton, you can look at that online. Almost all the questions he asked were taken from my book without credit. He never, it would have been nice if he had said, Joseph McBride uh, found out this and that. He doesn't do it, but he, he's asking Spielberg all these questions, including, he said, is it true that, you know, when Close Encounters, when the ship comes down and communicates with music and lights, that could be seen as your father and mother being sent this? And Spielberg looked really kind of stunned. He said, oh, where'd you get that? And he says, I never thought that. I never, I didn't know that. And that's true, you know, that's really true. And um, so that's 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 one reason it hits a deep chord in people. But it's also um, uh, about a broken family. And uh, my friend Art Murphy, when I was on Variety, Art Murphy was our number one film reviewer and a great box office expert. <clears throat> and he told me the success of E.T., he thought it was due to the fact that uh, Walt Disney movies were, were not popular anymore in that period because Walt had died some years before, but all the guys who were working there were trying to make movies they thought Walt would do, right? So they were making these stale copies of films that were really out of date, and they never showed broken families, for example. But by then, you know, 50% or whatever of American families were divorced. But it was taboo in a Disney film to show divorce. But Spielberg showed a divorced family and the mother being very distraught. And it's sad, painful. It's tough on the kids. And the mother is so disorganized and distraught that she doesn't realize an alien is living in her house. That becomes a source of comedy. And and um, it's about re reconstituting the family. And E.T. is like a surrogate father figure. And at the end of the film, the mother is, is uh, hooked up with um, the scientist played by Peter Coyote called Keyes, who, who is a very sympathetic figure in the film. And he, he likes E.T. and he wants to help re rescue him like the kid does. And, but in Close Encounters, it's a very uh, screwed up family. Uh, Richard Dreyfuss has this vision and he's, the, the family thinks of it as madness. And it seems, he, it, it looks like he's going mad because he's obsessed with this uh, mountain that's implanted in his consciousness. Isn't there a aliens. whole scene, if I remember correctly, where he's like building something like a, a thing with mashed potatoes? Yeah, yeah. That's a great scene. And Spielberg cut that from the film. Uh, when, it, when it first played, I thought that's the best scene in the film. I mean, from a dramatic point of view, he's, he's building this mountain with mashed potatoes and his family are all looking at him like, wow, this guy's crazy. And there's a beautiful moment where he, he looks at his family and he, 
the kids are crying and he says, I, I guess you've noticed there's something not quite right about dad, you know. And and um, Spielberg cut that because some people laughed at that in, in the uh, initial audience. So when he did his um, misbegotten special edition, he cut that. And then he put it back in. He, he put together almost all the missing scenes. And he also put in a scene that he said really happened in his family where the father was so distraught, he, he, he's hiding in the shower and he's taking a shower and crying and he's like in a fetal position. The kid comes in and says, cry baby, cry baby, cry baby. And Stephen said he once saw his father crying about something and he, he, he did that. He couldn't handle it. He called him cry baby, cry baby. He felt bad about it later. But the father in, in, in Fableman's is crying and the kids are all crying when he tells them the family's getting divorced, you know. And so Stephen, what Murphy said was that by putting that into the film, E.T. Spielberg connected with the audience in a big way because he was telling the truth about modern life in a way that the Disney films no longer did. So it, it had a He was dealing with issues of, um, you know, broken families and whatnot. Yeah, in a way yeah. Was very honest. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I remember there, I, I didn't see the film for like two weeks and this little kid I knew who was seven said to me, you got to see this movie. It's so wonderful. It's so moving. It's so, oh God, you know, like I thought, wow, this this boy is so deeply moved by this. But Close Encounters, it's very powerful stuff where his wife leaves him and uh, she, can't, she can't relate to him. She's not a sympathetically portrayed character. And in his early films, I found out also from his friends in Saratoga, he blamed his mother for the divorce initially uh, more than the father. And um, that's not totally, well, it is clear. It is clear in the film because many years later, and I put that in my book that uh, Stephen was angry at his mother. And um, I, I put in the stuff about Bernie Adler. She fell in love with Bernie Adler. And I had to be a little circumspect about it. But it's in my book. And then many years later on um, uh, 60 Minutes, Leslie Stahl interviews Spielberg's parents and they tell the story. And Leah says, yeah, I mean, it's me who caused the divorce because I fell in love with Arnold's best friend. And and then Leslie Stahl is kind of stunned. And she says to Arnold, uh, uh, didn't Stephen blame you for the divorce? And, and uh, he said, yeah, you know, I took the blame. And she said, why would you take the blame? You know, it wasn't your doing. And he said, well, you know, I loved her and wanted to protect her. You know, it's very moving. And then she shows Stephen this on a tablet and he's looking at this and he's going, wow, you know, and yeah, you know, I kind of sensed that, but I wasn't totally sure when you're a kid, you don't totally know what's going on. So that's, that is what Fableman's revolves around, how he discovers that whole romance and, the, again, the broken family portrayed in different ways in three three major films, but in almost all the films, there's some kind of a broken family or a social breakdown of some kind or another. Yeah, something I wanted to ask you is, why do you think, we've been talking about how there is sort of a, you know, Spielberg will show the darkness of society at times. Why do you think so many people miss that? Why do you think people assume, oh, he's just being, uh, you know, too sentimental about things? Why do you think people misinterpret him? Well, I wrote this whole piece, as I mentioned, about his the phenomenon of Spielberg hatred. And there are people who just don't like Spielberg. I don't say everybody who dislikes him is, you know, has some pathological hatred. But there's some people do seem to have a path, pathological hatred. Um, I think part of it is 
he he is a very emotional director and some people especially reviewers i would say and i i know a lot of reviewers and i've been one uh tend to be rather dysfunctional people i mean we're all dysfunctional in some way or another but a lot of reviewers have trouble with emotion deep emotion they resent feeling emotion spielberg makes you feel emotion and it, it to me it's very well earned you know it's not some small city uh lacquers the film with but they a word that comes up all the time when people don't like him they say he manipulates the audience well michael khan his longtime editor said you know editing by definition is manipulative i mean you're putting pieces of film together abe polanski once told me the director writer he said we we tell you what to to think or feel by how we cut from somebody's face to what they're looking at and cut back and you know sure it is manip manipulative art art is man manipulative in that sense but they they see it as a pejorative thing like a like a bad thing i don't think he's um uh i don't know violating uh, i mean some people who hate him even call him a nazi you know which is really a nasty thing to do to a jewish filmmaker um comparing to lenny riefenstahl etc and I mean, that's how, how bad it gets. Spielberg's rabbi, Albert Lewis, who was who taught him in Hebrew school when he was a kid, and I met him, a very erudite man. He became a, a big leader in the rabbinical community. And he said he thought the root of Spielberg hatred was anti-Semitism. And I, I said that at a speech at the first International Spielberg Conference in England. And I got some pushback on that, but I put it in my book, the third edition, because I think that if you look at the tropes of anti-Spielberg hatred, what what you get are a lot of things that are anti-Semitic tropes as well. Like he's commercial, he's into money making, he's uh, manipulative of people's emotions, he's um, manipulates children and um, uh, outsiders, and he's he's stirring up a lot of anger about society, and uh, he's a member of the media who's kind of manipulating our minds. You know, all these things are kind of typical anti-Semitic tropes. And I think Rabbi Lewis puts his finger on some of it. I'm not saying all people who don't like Spielberg are anti-Semites, but there's some connection there, um, resentment. But <clears throat> um, I, a lot of it is just very simple jealousy of this guy who's tremendously successful, the most successful director commercially, uh, um, I don't know, you might have to put James Cameron up there, but Spielberg's long track record is gigantically successful. And uh, um, a lot of reviewers, I think, just think, well, I'm as smart as he is. How come I'm not more successful? You know, how come yeah, the I'm thing right? I always see is, uh, you know, I always see certain cinephiles say, oh, you know, Spielberg could never be like uh, Kubrick, Kubrick's greatness. Uh, it, it, it's kind of funny to me because they were kind of friendly in real life. Yeah, they were very close, and Spielberg directed AI, which is a great film, I think, that got trashed by a lot of critics, too. You know, Kubrick's films, and like Orson Welles' films, I think Welles and Kubrick are very similar in some ways. They made, each made 12 films released in their lifetimes, and they both died at the age of 70. And they, they were very differently received, because Welles never had the support of a major studio after his early support from RKO, which fell apart quickly. But uh, Kubrick had Warner Brothers behind him, and they backed him very uh, um, with great confidence. They let him do almost every film he wanted to do, and they didn't interfere with him. And 
Spielberg has that kind of power too because he's earned it over the years. And but Kubrick's films made money, unlike Wells's films, you know, and Spielberg's films make money, so he has that that clout. But the the thing I was going to say about AI and Kubrick, uh, Kubrick's films, like Wells's films, usually got bad reviews when they opened. Kane was was an exception. Kane got great reviews, but most Wells films got sort of baffled reviews because Kubrick and Wells never made the same kind of film twice. Most directors, you kind of know what to expect. Uh, Spielberg is very um, eclectic in his subject matter. He compares himself to people like uh, Michael Curtiz, you know, from the golden era, who did all kinds of films, or Howard Hawks, who was a master of several genres. But Hitchcock, you always kind of knew what to expect, pretty much, or even John Ford, although Ford made a lot of different kinds of films. But with Wells and Kubrick, you never knew what to expect because they would make films that were totally different from their previous work and uh the the critics couldn't relate to that they didn't know how to pigeonhole them but after about five or ten years a film like 2001 which got a lot of negative reviews would be hailed as a classic you know this is typical that happened to wells too but with spielberg um yeah he got a lot of negative reviews for a long time i wrote the book really to try to rectify that problem and I write, I write biographies and other books, as a lot of writers do, I think, is to to solve some problem or rectify an injustice. You know, I get angry. You know, uh, John Ford was once asked by an interviewer in the 30s, do you like to make films about subjects that, that make you angry? And he said, what the hell else does a man live for? And that's kind of how I feel. So if I feel there's an injustice done, like Spielberg being underrated uh, unfairly, I will write a book to try to rectify that. And also his father being um, uh, maligned and, and uh, underrated. And I, I, I set out to kind of heal that problem. And I think I had some some influence on that because not long after my book came out, Stephen and his father reconciled. And it, it was such a big deal. It made the cover of Life magazine. Uh, and then they, so fortunately for the last uh, 15 years or so of, or more of uh, Arnold's life, Stephen and Arnold were good friends. Uh, but, um, uh, you know, with Capra, I felt there was an injustice done that he was not the man he portrays himself as being and he fooled the public and he he uh, betrayed his friends by uh, informing during the blacklist period. And with John Ford, I felt he was very misunderstood as a person. People didn't really understand who this guy was. He seemed as like a rough-hewn cowboy kind of guy. And yet he made these very sensitive films and there was a kind of a schism between the public personality and the films. And Ford kind of hid his true nature from the public and, and I wanted to solve that riddle. And that's why I write books. So that's why I wrote the Spielberg book pretty much to to bring him back into uh, critical favor. But, you know, the, the thing that triggered me to finally get off my ass and write this book was when he announced he was doing Schindler's List, because I'd been aware for years that Sid Sheinberg had bought the Thomas Keneally novel uh, for him to direct in 1982 when the book came out. And um, Spielberg kept kind of balking at doing it. He, he was afraid of am I ready to do this? And he, he actually tried to pass it off to other directors like Scorsese and Roman Polanski. But then when he finally said, I'm doing it. Why did he thought, balk at doing it initially? I'm just curious. 
Well, partly because it's such a Jewish subject matter, uh, he was, you know, as I say, he was kind of hiding behind being a kind of uh, an assimilated Christian iconographer in his films, and, or, or just not being overtly Jewish in his films. And that took a lot of guts, and um, also it's a very difficult subject. And uh, I, I was going to say, I, I think Kubrick said the reason that he never made uh, a film about the Holocaust was he said it's it's like it's such a tragedy and and so horrific that he could never actually portray it on screen properly and convey that. Yeah, his wife said that Kubrick was planning a film called Aryan Papers about a boy caught up in the Holocaust, and uh, he 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 was planning it, but it, it caused him great trauma, you know, being Jewish, and and his wife said he abandoned it he, he he said he abandoned it because spielberg was doing schindler's list and uh he didn't want to he felt you know spielberg would do the subject well um although he kubrick made a few critical remarks about uh schindler i guess schindler's list but um his wife said he really just found it too insupportable to to make a film of so that you know it's a heavy burden and a big production in a hard sell i mean i tried to make it i i was trying to i was a screenwriter and i i i, I thought the painted bird by Yerzy kaczynski would make a great film and somebody's recently filmed it but um, i went around the studios with kaczynski's blessing in the early 80s trying to sell that and they all looked at me like are you kidding a film about the holocaust we're not going to make a movie about the holocaust there there was kind of a taboo about it there uh, it was considered you know uncommercial and um but he um, he wasn't ready for it. He also felt, you know, a little self-critical that will I do justice to it? You know, it's so raw and and like he, when he made the film, he said, "I denied myself the use of a crane, for example, because I'm aware that I do these swooping crane shots." And he wanted to make it look more like a documentary and less like a feature film. And he, he didn't want any kind of um, grand emotional use of the camera etc but he he uh so he had to kind of psych himself into it and P polanski turned it down even though i mean polanski was in the krakow ghetto liquidation when he was a child that, that scene the most horrific scene in the film um 15 minute uh tour de force of horrible incidents and polanski was a little boy and his father cut the barbed wire and told him to run and he turned around and looked back, and his father said, "Get, get the hell out of here! Run, run, run!" So Polanski ran for like three years, and uh, uh, the Painted Bird. Some people think is Polanski's story, but Spielberg offered it to him, and he said, "I just can't do that film because it's too close to me." He later made the the Pianist, you know, which is his film on the Holocaust. So he was, as you get older, I guess you can feel more confident about it. And Spielberg had trouble getting Universal to back. Schindler's List. It only cost $22 million, which is not much for a big period film like that. But one of the executives really angered him by saying, you know, why don't we just write a check for $22 million to your favorite Holocaust charity? And Spielberg got really furious about that. And then they said, um, okay, we'll, we'll do it, but why don't you shoot it in color and we'll release it in black and white. And he knew that that was a pitfall because they would screw him eventually and release it in color and that was the most important aesthetic decision he made in the film was to shoot it in black and white which was you know a hard sell but it the irony was it was a big commercial success it grossed 300 million 
around the world. And um, the public, to their credit, was willing to watch it and found it very powerful and moving. And Spielberg didn't want to earn anything from the film. He donated all of his earnings to the survivors of the Shoah Foundation that he had set up to record testimonies of, I think it's 150,000 uh, survivors of the Holocaust and other genocides. And uh, he said he was more proud of that than anything else he'd ever done. But he didn't want blood money, he said, for making that film. But see, I knew that when, if he made that film, it would be a, a, a huge step in his maturation process. He, I, I was going to say, I do think it's a turning point. Um, he almost becomes like a a public intellectual filmmaker in a weird way after that. Like he makes yeah. historical dramas a lot more after that. Yeah, and he became a public, um, I mean, he was a public figure, as I mentioned before, but he became a public spokesman for causes. People would come to him and interview him about important issues of history and the Holocaust, but other issues too. And uh, one thing I admire about him, unlike Frank Capra, who was not um, ready for that, after Capra made It Happened One Night, people would come to him for questions of history and politics, and he he, he didn't know what to answer. He was not very well educated. I mean, he had a scientific education at what is now Caltech, which is pretty good for a kid from his background. I mean, very good. But he didn't have the history, sociology, literature background. But Spielberg, even though he, he was a college dropout who later completed college as, as kind of a tribute to his family and his father and his kids, um, but he was not the most, um, uh, you know, educated person either, Spielberg, but somehow he's been able to be very cogent and very uh, responsible in his public statements. He doesn't make foolish uh, kind of incoherent comments like Capra did, and uh, he, he makes thoughtful, serious comments. I mean, he he he's, when he did Schindler's List, he went all over the world and appeared at various Holocaust events, and he... Uh, there was an incident in Oakland where some kids were laughing at Schindler's List. The teacher took them to see it, and they would laugh when people got shot, for example. And somebody wrote an article about, isn't this terrible? And these were black kids from Oakland, you know. And um, one reason they laughed was they had seen a lot of violence in their lives, and they were kind of cauterized to it to some extent. And also, it is a human thing when, when kennedy was shot when i heard he was shot i laughed that was my first reaction it's just something sometimes you have this involuntary reaction that's counterintuitive and, and then i looked at the kid who told me and i realized he wasn't kidding and i spun around ran out the door and ran to a radio and listened to the to the uh, reports but so what spielberg did was rather than just make some knee-jerk comment he, he flew up to oakland and met with the kids and had a really good talk with them you know that's the kind of thing he did and then he started the shoah foundation so so he's and then he gets more got more into history and he has a genuine interest in history um he, he i mean empire of the sun is a terrific uh, historical film it's based on a, a novel by J.G. Ballard, which... Right, the great J.G. Ballard, yeah. the great, Yeah, great. Although he admitted in an autobiography published many years later that a lot of that stuff was fictionalized, uh, but it's it's a terrific film about a kid in a Japanese uh, prison camp, um, British kid uh, from Shanghai. But, um, you know, Spielberg did Amistad, and he did uh, Lincoln, and uh, I mean, he does some 
sometimes his historical films are not all that great. I thought The Post was about the worst film he's ever done. Frankly, it's such a ridiculous uh, distortion of... Do you think it's because he, he minimizes Ellsberg so much, or what is it about The Post that you weren't a fan well, of? Well, first of all, it's absurd to make a movie about the Pentagon Papers and call it The Post. That'd be like making a movie about Watergate and calling it uh, The New York Times. I mean, you know... It was the New York Times that broke the story of the uh, Pentagon Papers, and to make it about the Post is kind of crazy. Do you think and, it was maybe well-intentioned, though, in the sense of, I, I mean, that was during a time when Trump was really attacking the media a lot, and yeah. maybe maybe Spielberg felt, you know, these attacks in the press are scary to me. Yeah, that's he actually said that's why he did it, and that's maybe a little too obvious in the film that he wanted, I think, what attracted him was Catherine Graham being the leading character. And, and I mean, she's, she's an interesting figure, but she's very CIA connected. She and her husband, and, and you don't learn that from the film. And she's, she, you know, in my book, political truth, I write mostly about the Washington post and the New York times lying to us about the Kennedy assassination and many other subjects for a long time. And the post is the CIA uh, organ and they have been since, uh, Phil Graham ran it in the early 50s and now they're openly so Jeff Bezos makes deals with the CIA and everything but um, Catherine Graham one of her most infamous comments she went to the CIA and gave a speech on the CIA and the media and she said uh, um, the decision what what to print and what not to print is, is very important and I mean, I'm paraphrasing and to keep the secrets is important in the government you know the secrets are important to government and, and we decide um, what the agenda is, is what she said also and that that shows she has a very managing the news attitude and covering up for a lot of things and all the president's men is is a brilliantly made film but a fairy tale because and we don't have time to go into it but uh, i i think that woodward for example, has long-time intelligence connections. He was with the Office of Naval Intelligence. And um, for a year before he became a, quote, reporter, I have to put that in quotes, um, he was briefing Alexander Haig, Nixon's aide at the White House, <clears throat> in uniform for an entire year. He'd go there every day and give him the top secret Navy intelligence briefing. And you don't see that in all the president's men. And the whole Deep Throat didn't really exist as a person. Deep Throat was a composite for all the intelligence sources that Woodward had, who he didn't want you to know about. And that fellow, Mark Felt, who they later said was Deep Throat, well, he was, he was one of his sources, but there are a lot of other sources. And Woodward um, w w was doing the bidding of the intelligence agencies to bring down Nixon, basically. It's a completely different story from all the president's men. And so the Post is just full of kind of, um, that. that is, I would say, sentimentalizing Catherine Graham because it's lying about her true nature. It's, it's a very simple-minded screenplay. The, the young woman who wrote the script said she was inspired by Graham's autobiography, which is a very interesting autobiography, but it leaves out all kinds of stuff and lies about a lot of things. And this person swallowed this completely, not knowing much about history at all. And to take that book as your jumping off point is pretty uh, juvenile, frankly. You know. Before we uh, close out, and I'm sorry we haven't got into uh, Billy Wilder or your Cohen book, but I'm, I'm fascinated by, by this uh, discussion of Spielberg. I guess... Um, there were two things I wanted to sort of lead off with when it comes to Spielberg. And the first thing I wanted to mention was 
it seems like in many ways, you know, I think a lot of people look at, say, Oliver Stone and say, oh, yeah, he's the quintessential liberal filmmaker. Uh, but I think there is sort of a liberal ethos uh, to a lot of Spielberg's films. Uh, but at the same time, what I'm very interested in, I know you cover it briefly in your book, uh, there is a time where, in a way, I think Spielberg almost betrays his own liberal values, especially after the war on terror. Could you speak mm. to that, uh, the, the oh. Iraq war and whatnot? Yeah, I write about that a lot in my second and third editions of the Spielberg book. Um, his his works after 9-11 were, were very influenced by 9-11. And, um, you know, he, he, he sees himself as a kind of a, a political filmmaker, a kind of a He's like Oliver Stone, who's a political filmmaker. Stone is more radical. Uh, Spielberg is a classic liberal with some limitations that go along with that. But um, a lot of his films after um, uh, 9-11 are, are allegories for 9-11. War of the Worlds is very clearly an allegory for 9-11. It's, it's what would happen if we were invaded, you know, because the United States is rarely invaded and the, the mainland you know we're kind of insulated by the two oceans and we were invaded by the british in 1812 and uh uh well 9-11 uh you know is well we can get into that's a long story i don't think the, the official story is accurate i mean i write in political truth all the big events in american history since 1960 uh, uh, have been the official versions are lies that fall apart when you start examining them, and 9-11 is another one. But uh, War of the Worlds is a very visceral film. What it would be like to be invaded, like if you if we were the Iraqis, you know, we, we, we tend to be very complacent about invading other countries because we don't have that experience very much. Yeah, there's and, one uh, character I think that says, the little girl and it says, uh, is it the terrorists that are here? Yeah, yeah, and he did some things. For example, E.T., there's a scene where... Um, one of the little girls on Halloween is going as, or the the, the boy, uh, the older boy, is dressed as a terrorist. And he cut that line from the film when he reissued the film after 9-11. And he also took out the guns in the hands of the uh, authority figures who were chasing the boys. Uh, and he replaced them with walkie-talkies through CGI, which I thought was just a terrible, terrible idea. And he later realized it was an awful idea, and he put the he put the film back the way it was supposed to be for for home video. But uh, the the thing that is good and bad about him is Minority Report is a powerful film about civil liberties, and it seems very relevant to the era of 9/11 because you know with the Patriot Act and other uh, things taking away our basic civil liberties and the public. Uh, more or less going along with it with some complaints. And then we see what it led to. And, you know, I, I go into this in political truth that the Kennedy assassination, the lies about that and the lies about what, uh, Vietnam and Watergate and everything led to January 6th, where uh, half our country believes lies about our history and half believes factual things. And that is a dangerous situation. It, it is good to be skeptical about what you read in the press because a lot of it is false but to to um to believe lies is very dangerous and that led to a, a coup attempt on uh, january 6th and, and um, a lot of people defended that i mean you know we're still so divided but so when he made minority report he started making it before 9 11 but it came out after 9 11 and he was nervous about that and um the film is a very strong statement about uh the danger of taking away civil liberties and pre pre crime is what they call it. It's based on a Philip K. Dick uh, story, and uh, they predict that 
some people will commit a crime in the future, so we have to lock them up. And that's very much in the spirit of Bush and the Patriot Act and Cheney and everything. And he, he, he was sort of uh, supportive of, of Bush when it came to the Iraq War and the Patriot yeah. Act at first. But he came to his senses later on. Yeah, what happened, and I talk about this in my book, uh, it's, it's shameful that when, when Minority Report came out, um, Spielberg said, well, you know, I, I, now I feel a little differently because after 9-11, I think that I would sacrifice some of my civil liberties for pr protection from terrorism, you know. And I quoted Benjamin Franklin's great comment that, uh, I hope I quote this correctly, um, those who are willing to sacrifice some um, some of their liberties for temporary safety deserve neither liberty or safety you know and so spielberg was one of the people who who cravenly said he'd be willing to give up some civil liberties and then he supported the war in iraq he said you know as as an american citizen i have to go along with the president and this and obviously bush uh, is not the kind of person that spielberg normally would support i mean he stole the election in 2000 and spielberg is a democrat etc but bush was uh, really a terrible president in so many ways st starting these two wars uh, for no reason at all and, and, and so, to be fair to spielberg he wasn't the only celebrity no. that that fell under the spell yeah. yeah i mean hollywood caved in big time to the threats you know i mean like when bill maher's show was taken away from him because he made a comment about 9-11 that met with the disapproval of the of the uh, Bush Cheney regime, they took away a show. A lot of people were terrified, but Spielberg is the kind of person who should have withstood that. I mean, he's a man of principles and he's a liberal. He has a lot of power. They're not going to put him in prison or something. But he did. I, I will say that after a year or two, after a couple of years, he started saying, "Well, I now realize the war in Iraq was a big mistake." But I mean, by then it was pretty obvious. I mean, I was one of the what was it, 10 million people around the world who marched uh, to try to stop the war in Iraq. It had no uh, effect at all, obviously, but um, a lot of us knew that the war was based on false pretenses, but Spielberg didn't at first because he was blinded by this false notion of patriotism that he has. And uh, But he later said, I realize this war should not have been fought. Of course, the war in Afghanistan was supported by a lot of Democrats, including Obama, who Spielberg worships him. Um, you know, that, that war should have been opposed from the beginning, too. But so Spielberg's uh, liberalism sometimes uh, limits his, his thinking process. The very last thing I want to touch upon, and this will actually tie in with your uh, two recent books, Billy Wilder and, and uh, the Coen brothers. Uh, in, in thinking about the Fablements, one of the things that I was really sad about is the fact that it doesn't seem to have done very well. Um, at the box office. And I think we actually live in a very, I mean, I would just come out right out and say it as much as I love genre films. I think, you know, me by now I like uh, a good Roger Corman B movie as much as I love genre films though. I think we're in a very bad period when it comes to film. I'm very um, disheartened by the fact that it seems like we're dominated by uh, superhero movies, for instance. And I think there's some scary political implications to that too, but just beyond that, it seems like filmmakers with something to say and filmmakers that make serious adult films, whether we're talking about Spielberg or or the Coen brothers or Billy Wilder, that seems to have been pushed to the side. Uh, do you think that we've lost sight of, of the importance of cinema um, and different types of cinema? And could you speak to that a little bit? 
yeah, I mean, I was a screenwriter in the 70s, and I, I retired from that field in 1984 to write books full time. I'm really, it's one of the best things I did, but it was hard for me to leave the business. But um, I saw that coming in the late 70s that the, the uh, films were becoming very juvenile. And a lot of people blame, to, to mention Spielberg and Lucas, they blame Spielberg and Lucas for Jaws and Star Wars. And I think that's somewhat misguided because they both made effective films. I'm not a Star Wars fan, but it was well made. But they're entertaining films. Uh, you know, to blame them for the entire downfall of the American film industry is short-sighted. I actually think that the big, the big um, problem arose when, you know, the blockbuster syndrome took over because of Jaws and Star Wars. They started wanting to make these big films that would make hundreds of millions of dollars and. And they, they were less interested in the middle range films that appealed to uh, adults, you know. I mean, my friend John Davison, who produced RoboCop, I asked him right after Star Wars what he thought of it. And he said, Star Wars would be my favorite movie if I were six years old. And that's how I felt. But um, the, big, the big change, I think, was television advertising. Jaws is falsely credited with uh, opening and you know, record number of theaters or whatever, it's just false. I mean, I did my research. It opened in something like 470 theaters, and they actually cut back the number of theaters it was going to open in because if you had a good film back then, you didn't open it really wide. Uh, there was a Charles Bronson film called Breakout, which opened in a thousand theaters. And if you had a, a crummy movie where you wanted to get in and out quickly before the word of mouth spread, you'd open it in a lot of theaters. But people, for some crazy reason, seem fixated on this myth of Jaws opening widely. What happened with Jaws was it played for a year in theaters. It just kept doing better and better and better. But the, the real innovation with Jaws was they had national TV advertising from the opening weekend. And they opened, they had, so national TV advertising was, was not that heard of in those days. It's expensive. And, um, you know, if you were living in a small town in Iowa, Jaws wouldn't be coming to your town right away, but you'd still see the ad on TV. So the public had a great awareness of that. That's, that's really the big innovation that Hollywood started doing that. And then when Star Wars came out, they thought, wow, okay, there's this kid audience that will see a film over and over again. And, and uh, so I, I saw the handwriting on the wall and I started thinking of getting out of the film industry. And then when Reagan came in, uh, Juvenilia swept Hollywood. Uh, they started making films, you know, like Porky's and those kind of films, Animal House. Um, you know, they're, they're appealing to the teenager and the, and the adolescent audience. And the, well, even movies not... that weren't necessarily comedies, right? Like, uh, I, I think Red Red Dawn is very juvenile. To be honest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They made silly, you know, movies, escapist films, which you know there is something okay about escape escapism, but it shouldn't be all you get. And so they they stopped, and and also the cost of making movies escalated uh, in the eighties and nineties. And part of that, I think, is due to the fact that Hollywood is so corrupt and crooked that you know they have this thing called the rolling break, where a film really uh, never makes a profit in the accounting books. Uh, some accountant came up with this idea, which I don't understand why this is not illegal. They keep adding. Uh, things to the budget and so the people who have profit percentages never really get them except in rare cases but if you have the gross percentage which very few people get like Spielberg and Clint Eastwood get gross percentages which means from the first dollar the studio gets back from theaters they get 50 percent of it um, 
that that is where you make money off films but what happened is because people had no faith on the, uh, that they'd get rewarded on the back end they started taking it on the front end so stars would get 20 or 30 million for a film which would have been unheard of back in the day and everybody else above the line gets a huge amount of money and then uh, costs have gone way up when you make a big uh uh cgi film or a spectacle of some kind of it's terribly expensive and film like titanic was wildly expensive at the time of course it made a lot of money but um they've they've turned away their interest in the older audience i mean anybody over about 24 is neglected by hollywood and um uh so that that i saw coming and that that ruins american filmmaking and i was i i tried to uh sell a book idea about how hollywood was destroying itself in the late 90s and people said i was too uh negative and i mean i was right and i was going to write about all this but we've become this uh, this once great american film industry which uh back in the day when when films when the major studios existed and they had their own theater chains, which they were not allowed to have after World War II, um, that was that was a huge blow to Hollywood. And before television, the, the whole family would go to see movies. You know, the films are made for the family. You could take your uh, kids and your uh, mother and father and the grandparents and see the you know films, most films. And you had people. Billy Wilder, to mention him, he was one of the people like Ernst Lubitsch, his mentor who were making the American films more and more sophisticated and uh, Europeanized. They both came from Europe and they had great sexual sophistication and, and subtlety. And they got around the code, which was very strict, but they, they got around it. So Wilder made a film like The Apartment, you know, which was a great hit, very serious film, but also very entertaining. He did both at the same time. And well, and one of was, my favorites is uh, The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes, because that's really subversive. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I I love that film. That is a terrific film. Uh, I I wrote a good review of that in Film Quarterly in 1970, and I started writing about him in 1970. I've been writing about him ever since. And that film died at the American box office because um, even then he was seen as old fashioned because he was classical, and he it's a very beautiful film and it, it deals a lot with political issues and and. Uh, um, romantic uh, disillusionment and some serious things but it's a film for an, an adult sensibility and it didn't it didn't uh, seem to fit in with easy rider and those kind of films that, that were uh, becoming popular then although that period we now look back on as as a golden age the first five years of the 70s a lot of good filmmakers got their start and made good films but there were still some of the the, the uh, classic filmmakers working back then george kukor and uh, Howard Hawks and Wilder, but there, people were not going to their films as much, and uh, we lost something. And, and those guys started having more and more trouble making films. I think Avanti is probably my favorite Wilder film, 1972, and that's a very romantic film in the Lubitsch tradition. But it's about a middle-aged man falls in love with a younger woman. But it's it's uh, it deals with. Um, they're reenacting the romance of their dead parents. So in a, in a way it says we're kind of, let's focus on the traditions of the past that were more romantic than the current day, which was into uh, free love and casual impersonal sex. And the, the audience just rejected that film because I remember at the time, if somebody wanted to put you down, they'd say, oh, you're romantic. You know, I heard that from some people. You're so romantic. Well, that meant that you 
had emotional connections to sex. It wasn't just, you know, free love or whatever. Free love had its place, but uh, romantic was a dirty word. And, and uh, so those Wilder reacted to the breakup of the studios and the coming of the uh, new freedoms by be becoming more romantic. And it was totally out of step with the public. But the Coen brothers, um, who I wrote a short book about recently, uh, I love their work. I think they're brilliant. I, I call them the sons of Billy Wilder because they're very similar. They make films in different genres like he did, but they're very uh, they're very funny and serious at, at, at the same time. Some of the films, like No Country for Old Men, is a more somber film than some of the other ones. They're very zany, like Burn After Reading, I think is a good film. And, you know, they... They have different tones, but they shift. One and also, I wrote that book partly because the critics, once again, are a lot of them hate the cones or mis misunderstand them. They have a lot of popularity, but a lot of detractors. And part of what people object to is their mixing of comedy and and violence and drama in the same film. People have trouble. Truffaut mentioned that way back when when Shoot the Piano Player came out. Bosley Crowther in the New York Times said, has Mr. Truffaut flipped his lid, you know, with having uh, somebody get shot in the middle of a comedy? I mean, what's going on here? You know, they, and he lost his job because of um, he didn't understand Bonnie and Clyde, which blended comedy and violence in a memorable way. I was um, going to say you even see that with, um, you, I, you know, my favorite Billy Wilder film. And I actually saw it after it was recommended to me by John Sills hmm. um, in an interview I did with him, which was um, Sunset Boulevard. I mean, that's a movie that you know, yeah. blends black comedy and film noir in a yeah, brilliant yeah. way. Yeah, very funny movie, but very, very tragic at the same time. And uh, it, it did well with the public and the critics um, and it got um, acclaim. But some people in Hollywood just hated that film. You know, I mean, they saw it as he was biting the hand that fed him. And Louis B. Mayer allegedly told Wilder, uh, we should throw you back in the water so you can float back to Europe where you came from, you know, which is really a... Uh, Wilder thought that, I mean, Wilder said that Mayer said he should be deported for making sense of Boulevard. It was an expose of the film business. But when I told Wilder, when I interviewed him once, I said, um, you know, when I was in Wisconsin, I thought Sunset Boulevard was a great film, but maybe a little too uh, cynical portrait of Hollywood or something. And then I said, when I got to Hollywood, I realized it's, it's like a documentary. It's so accurate. And Wilder said, well, it's a Valentine. I love that comment. <laughs> From his point of view, he could have made a much, much more, uh, a much darker film. But it's, I, it's I, funny I, you say that because John Sills, when I asked him about, you know, what movies he liked, he said Sunset Boulevard because that's what Hollywood's like. <laughs> yeah, it's completely. I mean, I, I found myself having the same situations happening to me uh, quite often. And, and um, there is a very positive character. People, think Wilder is a nihilist or cynic. I once said to him, I once used the word cynical referring to him, and then he said, but if I'm cynical, what adjective do you have for Peckinpah pictures? And uh, I, he, he said, every play by Ibsen is cynical, right? Every play by Strindberg is cynical, right? And I apologized, and I said, I'm sorry, I, you know, it was simplistic, and cynical is just another word for realistic. And that's when he said the thing about Ibsen and Strindberg. But... Um, uh, you know, for example, I mean, there are characters in his films who are positive, good people. Uh, a, a lot of women in his films. He's he's falsely regarded to as a misogynist, but he's really not. 
Um, Nancy Olson in that film, the young reader who falls in love with uh, William Holden's jaded screenwriter, who every screenwriter identifies with Holden. Um, Nancy Olson is a very uh, uh, intelligent, uh, clear thinking, ambitious young person. And I once met her and I just very briefly, and I said, I, I just want to tell you, I've dated many women in Hollywood because they remind me of your character in that film. And she said, I'm very sorry to hear that. And I, I, I puzzled over that remark for a long time. And finally, a friend of mine who does another uh, podcast had her on the show and he asked her about that comment because he had read that in my Wilder book. And she said, well, I, what I meant was that um, my character is uh, an opportunist, that she, she seizes on Holden's character because she wants to be a screenwriter and she sees it as her ticket out of being a script reader. And she's an opportunist. Well, yeah, okay, she's an opportunist. It doesn't mean she's a bad person or cynic. She just, she's ambitious and there's nothing wrong with that. She does, she's not the kind of person who will uh, tread on people's faces to, to be a success like a lot of people in Hollywood. What, what I wanted to close out on in, in discussing all these great filmmakers, um, you know, getting back to what I was saying about the state of movies today, you mentioned this sort of obsession with juvenilia. And I know that you think a lot about politics and truth and lies um, and where things are headed for us sociopolitically. And one of my concerns, I sort of agree with Alan Moore. I think he's on to something when he says that, you know, this obsession with superhero movies and juvenilia is probably very bad culturally and politically. Uh, you know, I, I think there is a connection between juvenilia and obsessions with, oh, why don't we just get a political strongman? I was wondering if you share those mm -hmm. sentiments or is that off base? Oh, no, I think that's very accurate. You know, when, um, there's there's a great Bertolt Brecht comment, unhappy the land that needs a hero. And our country, you know, is so screwed up in so many ways, economically, politically, that people want a heroic superhero. And it's funny, when I started teaching film in 2002 at San Francisco State, the students were obsessed with realism. And realism is a word that changes, you know, every generation. It depends on how you define it. But they kept saying, well, that film is realistic. That film isn't realistic. That was their criterion. But you never hear that anymore. They, they don't want realism. And there's another great quote from Tennessee Williams, uh, streetcar named Desire, where uh, Blanche says, I don't want realism. I want magic. And I think that's the American public saying we don't want realism we don't want to see the, the horrible world outside the theater you know like if people make a serious drama about the iraq war Afga afghanistan war or other serious problems it very seldom is successful um i would say the coen brothers one reason i admire them is that they've managed to make personal films challenging films that appeal to adult audiences they they usually don't make a hell of a lot of money, but they've had some that have done really well. Fargo is a terrific film that made a lot of money, and um, No Country for Old Men did very well, and True Grit made a lot of money. But um, I looked into how, how can they make these personal films the way they want to that appeal to a more intelligent audience? Uh, well, part of the reason is they get their money from Europe mostly, from France and other countries where they're uh, very highly regarded. And then they may get some money from American companies, but that's kind of a sign that we're not particularly interested. If you're the new Joel and Ethan Cohen walking into an office without a track record and you have script for one of their movies, you know, Barton Fink or something, they would throw you out of the office. 
But what they did was they made a couple of low-budget films that they raised the money for laboriously, and they showed that they could make a successful film that would be entertaining but still serious. Their first couple of films are very dark films, you know. But um, generally, the audience, um, I think it's sad. Spielberg's last two theatrical films, The Fatalmans and West Side Story, have both bombed at the box office. And a friend of mine, I wrote on Facebook, <clears throat> I referred to Steven Spielberg being uncommercial. And this guy said, Steven Spielberg, uncommercial. My God, what a change. I remember thinking when I typed that, this is kind of an uh, unusual way to describe Spielberg. But he has lost touch with the audience now, or the audience has lost touch with him. Part of it is due to the pandemic. You know, uh, the older audience hasn't come back to the theaters very much. Uh, um, you know, people, uh, the older audience stays home and watches films on streaming. So I think Spielberg said recently, uh, he was a big opponent of streaming for a while, but I think he's coming around to it that um, he thought the post maybe should have gone to streaming because it would have reached a bigger audience and had a political message, et cetera. But I think that the Fablemans, um, I guess it'll go to streaming before too long, but that's the kind of film that probably will do well with people who watch it at home and, I mean, unfortunately, to the DVD. It's so sad, though, because it's, yeah. it's something. I, I mean, I I haven't had a chance to see it, and I know it's. I I, I think it's getting a bigger release now. It, it initially was only in a certain number of theaters, but it's such a tragedy to me that a movie about filmmaking that's about the yeah. love of filmmaking, it, you have to watch it at your home now. You can't see it in a theater. Is the theater experience so different? Watching a movie with a group of people and laughing and crying, it's completely different from that uh, in-home experience. Yeah, and you don't get, even if, if you see it in the theater, you don't have a big audience for it. And West Side Story um, is the kind of film, a musical like that is very well directed, but uh, should be seen on the big screen. You know, it loses something on the small screen, but uh, you can see where it would do well in home video too. But uh, it is sad that Spielberg doesn't have that audience. Uh, Lincoln, for example, he had trouble getting the money to film that. Like in Hollywood, you know, they don't want to make a movie about Abraham Lincoln. And it's 50 million, which is not a lot for a big period film, because some of these, you know, spectacle movies cost a couple hundred million. But he didn't want to put his own money into it. He could write a check for it. One of the things he leaves out of the last scene of Fablemans with John Ford is Ford teaches him a very interesting lesson about composition that the viewers will find very entertaining. But Ford also said, never put your own money into a film. And that's one of the big taboos in Hollywood, because if you put your own money into a film, they don't like that because you're, you're independent of the system. So they really discourage it. But Spielberg never really put money into a film until he founded DreamWorks with Geffen and Katzenberg. They each put $33 million into it. And um, But when he did Lincoln, he could have funded, funded the film himself. But he, I guess he wanted the validation of his peers for that film. He was thinking of going to HBO with it which would have been a big change for him. HBC, if you want to see movies about people and relationships, people talking to each other, also period films go very well on streaming and cable TV, you know, they're all kinds of good. So that's where the action is in terms of adult quality filmmaking now. But Spielberg finally got the money to do Lincoln on the big screen. It's this beautifully shot film and did pretty well, you know, not super great, but it did okay. But there isn't a big market now. The young people uh, apparently 
West Side Story, I was surprised it flopped, and some people said they weren't surprised, but I don't know if they're rationalizing it, but young people are not particularly interested in a movie about the 50s even, and a, a classic musical like that. You know, people in my generation all remember the first film and the, and the soundtrack, and but, you know, if you're 21 years old or 14 or 15, you're not going to be interested in a classic old-fashioned musical, even, even though it's shot in this, you know, modern kind of style in a way but um fablemans is a period film too and uh, it, it's a film about serious family issues but it's also very entertaining and i think if people went to see it they'd like it it's just that what you know it's not the kind of thing that gets people to go out and see a film people go out and see the the latest superhero film because it's uh highly publicized jonathan rosenbaum wrote a book called movie wars a long time ago about 2000 or 2002 in which he talked about the dominance of big budget filmmaking and how the reviewers are all slavish to the studios and they're, they become like an adjunct to the studio publicity machine. So when a film opens like um, a Marvel movie on a Friday, even if it's a bad Marvel movie, um, you know, it'll get huge reviews in all the local papers and everything. And then, but if you open a, um, a little film or a uh, offbeat, film without big name people it it'll get shunted on the inside or maybe won't get reviewed at all fableman's got a lot of media attention because it's spielberg you know but um you know then people started attacking and i noticed this trend happened with west side story everybody raved about it oh this is so great and then it flopped and then they all started saying well you know it's really not that good a movie and you know and the same thing happened with Fableman's. Maybe some people were just waiting to chime in and they're saying, well, you know, blah, blah, blah. They're so slavish to the box office. And um, John Hausman used to say that um, when they started reporting box office grosses, he thought that was a really bad thing. And I'm, I'm partly involved in that because I was the box office reporter for Variety for a while. And I'm the guy who started the Sunday Estimates because I went to see Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles in 1990, and I actually, I, I had seen it before it opened. I knew it would be a big hit, and that sa Saturday, I was walking around. I saw gigantic lines of people seeing that film, so I thought, well, this is a story. It must have done very well, so I started calling the distributor and all, and I found out it was huge opening weekend, and so I, I wrote a big story about it, and I was like the only person who wrote about that on the Monday morning, and um, the distributor got something like 235 phone calls from the press that Monday. And that started the whole thing of Sunday box office estimates. So I'm responsible for that. But um, John Hausman, who was a producer, and, and, and he, he made the point that when the public didn't know what a film uh, grossed, because, it, you know, it's one thing for the trades to report it, but then it became picked up in the daily papers all over the country they'd run like the top 10 grossing films then it shrunk to the top five and then there'd be a story about oh you know um this marvel movie made 180 million this weekend or something and he thought that was a very bad thing for the public to be obsessed with that and they are kind of obsessed with that because it creates this sort of herd mentality that we all have to see this movie because everybody else is going to see that movie and fablemans well it's only playing in one theater and you know i don't know uh, they don't go to see it. It's kind of a, a, a lemming effect, unfortunately. Well, I want to thank you again, Joseph McBride, for coming on uh, Parallax Views. And my audience will um, 
you know, chastise me if I don't ask you. And this brings it full circle back to the Fablemans, uh, because that movie ends with John Ford as played by David Lynch. Uh, you had mentioned that you could speak a little bit to John Ford because you interviewed him. What was that experience like? And then I, I promise to let you go. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Well, it's been fun. Thank you very much for having me again. Well, I interviewed Ford the last day of his career, August 19th, 1970. I went to L.A. <clears throat> for the first time. I was I had finished more or less finished my first book on Wells, the critical study. And I was doing one with Michael Wellington on Ford. And we were pretty far along. Uh, but I wanted to interview Ford. And I... I called him on the phone and he came on he was very jovial and he agreed to meet me and but when i arrived he was very cantankerous like he is in the fablements uh but you know in the fablements he shows moments of affection and warmth toward the young guy coming to see him i had a whole hour with him and sammy gets one minute but um it was a memorable experience for spielberg and for me too uh ford was very crusty and very uh uh, you know, I was. This is my first Hollywood interview. Can you imagine with a guy who's about the hardest person to interview? So he would, he would stonewall me a lot. He'd pretend he wouldn't remember Fort Apache, and I asked him about the searchers. He said, "Well, made a lot of money, and that's the ultimate end." You know, and I mean things like that. And um, uh, but he was he was very anxious because he kept asking his secretary, "Has the gentleman from Italy called? Have we heard from the gentleman from Italy? Uh, what's going on?" And I, I wonder what that was about. And I later found out by going into his papers for my biography of Ford, Searching for John Ford, I looked up that week in his papers and Woody Strode, who starred in some of his films, had become a star in Italian Westerns. And he, since Ford hadn't been able to make a film in Hollywood for five years, the studios abandoned him after his great Seven Women, which flopped, unfortunately. But um, Ford, Woody Strode was getting Ford a job to direct an Italian Western. Ford was eager to do it. Oh, really? Was, would, yeah. So he would have, would, would he have done this movie with Woody Schroeder as one of the actors? Uh, presumably. Uh, yeah. Okay. And uh, he had some projects. He had three or four Western projects. I'm not sure which one he would have done in, in uh, Italy or Spain where, where they shot a lot of the films, but <clears throat> he had some Westerns he wanted to do kind of low budget things. And uh, he was eager to make a film, and uh, it wasn't happening. That day, he realized the Italian producer who was supposed to call him was not going to call. And so he came to that conclusion in the midst of the hour I spent with him. And it, toward the end of the interview, Ford surprised me by retiring. He, he, he said, I'm just a hard-nosed, hardworking, and then there was a long pause, and he said, ex-director, and I'm trying to retire gracefully. And he says, all you people come around and ask me the same questions, and I don't know the answers. I'm, you know, uh, it was very moving to me, very, very sad, that long pause, ex-director. And and he said, this is positively the last interview I'm ever going to give. And he gave one more, and that was it. Um, but he never made another film, and he realized then it was over. And I, I printed part of that interview in Sight and Sound and uh, in my book on Ford with Mike. It came out in 74. John Ford, um, and um, uh, but I was a little embarrassed by all the, you know, false starts and funny answers and stuff. So I finally put together a complete uh, uh, transcript of it, and I put it in my book, Two Cheers for Hollywood, which is a collection of my short work. And I, I put the uh, uncut audio, embarrassing as it may be, online. You can look it up, just type in, 
McBride Ford interview uncut and, and it's on a website. I gave it to him. And it's also on one of the DVDs. I do audio commentaries on films and uh, uh, I did audio commentaries on uh, a couple of early Ford Westerns, straight shooting and, and um, uh, um, Hellbent. And I think it's on the Hellbent uh, disc. Um, you can listen to it. But it was very memorable for me as a future biographer. I hadn't thought of doing a biography yet, but to be with my subject for an hour and kind of observe him at close range, I was kind of surprised by how insecure he seemed around a young admirer. And his gruffness was kind of a cover for that partly, but it was also, he, he realized it was a survival mechanism that if he went around and said, I'm an artist and all that, you'd get killed in Hollywood for saying that, like Eric von Stroheim or Orson Welles. But Ford was acting like, I'm just a hard-nosed, you know, craftsman. Uh, but, you know, he, he said some smart, interesting things in, in the midst of this. And then at the end of it, um, he gave me an Irish blessing. And then he made a joke about it, this typical Ford. And I uh, showed him a book. I gave him a book that I had edited called Persistence of Vision. And in Madison, a bunch of our film crowd put together a book. And I dedicated the book to Ford. And he lifted his eye patch and he held the book like right up to his eye like this to look at. And he said, oh, that's sweet. You know, so I thought that was very touching. And he does that with Sammy Fableman after being very gruff with him. He says, now get the fuck out of my office. Or first he says, good luck to you. Now get the fuck out of my office. And then Sammy pokes his head back in the door and says, thanks. And uh, thank you, sir. I think he says And the Ford says, my pleasure. You know, so that's kind of the way Ford was. He would let out these little moments of affection in the midst of the gruffness. But the gruffness was a pose and kind of a pulling, pulling your leg to some extent. But it wasn't easy to try to interview a guy like that. If I did it today, I would approach it sort of differently. But what did I know? I was 23 at the time, you know. Yeah, I was going to say, it sounds like the one big thing uh, that I get from hearing about you talk about these biographies you've written of filmmakers is it's not necessarily as romantic as when Sammy Fableman meets uh, John Ford or when Ed Wood meets, uh, yeah. you know, Orson Welles in yeah. Tim Burton's Ed Wood. <laughs> yeah, the Ed Wood thing is kind of, you know, it's it's kind of a nice tribute from Tim Burton, what he wished would have happened. Like, for example, Ed Wood's Plan 9 from Outer Space is shown debuting on Hollywood Boulevard. And I mentioned to my friend Joe Dante, who's a great director, and I said, you know, that film never played Hollywood Boulevard and it didn't have a big opening and joe said yeah but that's what he wished happened and tim burton gave him his wish of what should have happened you know and that's really true so the fablemans is a little like that there's some scenes and i in my slate article on it i talk about uh, the a big climactic scene spielberg kind of rewrote it the way with tony kushner the way that he maybe wished he his final encounter with the bully in saratoga uh is somewhat rewritten from reality where um, you know, it's more contentious, but very dramatic, very, very powerful. In real life, he, he said the guy came up to him after he saw himself in Stephen's film and said, hey, I liked your film and uh, wish we had got to know you better. Well, that's not, what, that's not what happens in The Fablements, but what happens is more interesting, you know. And uh, so it's a film that people really should see. I really hope they go see it before it's too late. It's, it's going to leave pretty soon unfortunately it may come back it should probably get a lot of oscar nominations and they probably will have a 
uh, another round of uh, theaters showing it down, I hope. Well, again, Joseph McBride, thank you for coming on Parallax Views. How can my listeners uh, keep up with your work? And uh, I assume they can get the books from their favorite bookseller. Yeah, um, I had a website and I kind of let it slide because I kind of forgot about renewing it when I was doing the four books that came out a year ago. Um, so I don't have a personal website. I have websites in some of my books, like Frankly, Unmasking Frank Capra and The Broken Places, my memoir and Two Chairs for Hollywood. Uh, uh, I think my uh, Into the Nightmare uh, website is still up there, but I'm on Facebook and I communicate with a lot of readers that way. It's very nice to hear from people. And I put my email address into my books, uh, Joe Mac. 809 at gmail.com j-o-e-m-a-c 809 at gmail.com i'd like to hear from people but um it, it is uh, most of the, almost all the books are on amazon and i've self-published some of them i published the wilder book billy wilder dancing on the edge with columbia university press and but political truth i self-published and it's sold through amazon so anybody can buy it there and into the nightmare is another one and the Coen Brothers book came out from Anthem Press in England and the U.S. So I kind of go back and forth between regular publishers and self-publishing more uh, quirky books that are kind of don't fit into the usual publishing world. But that's one of the great things about Amazon and self-publishing and the Internet and computerized typesetting. And you can you can reach people through books that maybe you couldn't have done years ago. So I managed to put out some books that were real dreams of mine for a long time, like the two Kennedy books and the broken places were dream projects in my collection, two chairs for Hollywood. So all those are on Amazon if people want to buy them. A couple of the books are out of print, but I'm going to work on getting them back into print. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Joseph McBride. Be sure to check out his books like Steven Spielberg, A Biography, Billy Wilder, Dancing on the Edge, and The Whole Dern Human Comedy, Life According to the Coen Brothers. As always, if you appreciate the work I do here at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said... Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views. With Jerry Mike to Parallax Jerry with Jerry The way out is not simply to say, don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm. I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. 
new forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.